Now live. Here we go, everybody. Welcome to episode number 41 of Sports Cards Live. Had the 40th episode just back on Wednesday. And I do want to thank my guest, Rich Klein. We had an amazing episode. We went for two hours and Rich is full of great stories. What a storyteller he is. Tons of experience, tons of knowledge, and he knows the who's who in the hobby. So I want to thank Rich for joining me. That was awesome. Catch Rich regularly Saturday mornings on Hobby Hotline, their call-in show. It's a really fun show. Check that out. I also want to thank Tony Siriani, product manager at Upper Deck, for joining me last Saturday. We also had a wonderful conversation. Tony provided a lot of insight into what goes on behind the scenes at Upper Deck when they're making sets. And after that, we had the first ever episode of After Hours, Sports Cards Live After Hours. Carlos uh, from the Because I'm Carlos YouTube channel joined me and we had a really relaxing time. It was pretty awesome. So thanks everybody who tuned into those and commented and had questions. You know, it's, it makes it so much fun. So thanks everybody for that. Want to let you all know this coming Wednesday, my guest are my guests will be the Urschel brothers. These are a couple of guys who are pretty much super collectors of Upper Deck Monumental patches that come out of the cup. They're really awesome. They've got like close to 100 of these things, I think, and they're going to show them to us. That'll be pretty cool. Well, it'll be a nice, relaxing collector's perspective type of episode. Next Saturday's guest is to be determined, but we'll be followed up with another episode of After Hours. Want to thank everybody who subscribed to the YouTube channel last week. We hit the 1,000 subscriber mark, so that was pretty cool. Thank you so much to everyone who has subscribed. If you haven't yet, I'd appreciate it if you would. That'd be wonderful. Thank you very much. Reminder, tonight, your comments, your questions are in play with Justin, who will be joining us out here in just a minute or so. So be feel free to ask your questions, po post your comments in the comments, whether you're on YouTube, Twitter, or Facebook, we will try to address all of those. And after the episode tonight, we're going to go about two hours tonight. We'll be done at around midnight Eastern, which is 10, uh, 9 o'clock Pacific, and half an hour later at uh, 1230 Eastern, 930 Pacific. I have with me, joining me, will be a youngster by the name of Charles. Charles is a 15-year-old vintage collector. I thought that would be fun because it's important for us to always remember that we need youngsters in this hobby, and we actually have some. So we're going to get to meet one later on tonight, and we will just chill out and talk hobby. Should be should be a lot of fun. So let's get on with it. Episode number 41, Sports Cards Live. Let's bring out Justin Kramer. Justin Welcome to episode number 41 of Sports Cards Live. How you doing, man? Very good, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. Um, I've seen a lot of your past shows, and it's really cool how you've uh, supplemented the hobby with what's going on right now. So thanks for having me. Oh, thanks, man. I, I, I appreciate that for sure. Thank you so much. And it's great to have you. So let's uh, let's just quickly mention to everybody kind of like, how do we know each other? How did you, how did it, how'd you end up on the show with me here tonight? So really... Um, you know, you're a guy who I've known for, it's got to be over 10 years now, I think, right? Yeah, I think 10, 12, somewhere around that. 10, 12 years. So as a lot of the viewers know, I'm involved in the, the message boards Hobby Insider. You've been a member on Hobby Insider for, well, at least that long. You live in New York. You come up to the Expo in Toronto twice a year. I'm there twice a year. And uh, you always come by my booth. We, we we shoot the poop. We hang out for a little bit. And um, we do the odd deal. I mean, you you... You're a guy who you, you know, and this is the topic of the show, but you you make your living in the hobby. 
but you also are a collector. So we're gonna we're gonna delve into that in a, in a little bit. Before, but that's really how we know each other, right? It's Hobby Insider, it's Expos. We've had a few meals together, and we've done business as well. A hundred percent. It's just something over time when you go to enough of these shows and you meet enough people, you're going to make some connections. You become friends with everybody, and um, you know you look forward to those weekends and those shows to uh, catch up a bit, right? Yeah, for sure, man, for sure. It's one thing to be on message boards or on Facebook or Instagram and, you know, communicating and following our our fellow hobbyists that way. It's another thing to actually get together in person, which obviously we haven't been able to do during 2020. But hopefully, hopefully we'll have a spring expo in Toronto. And uh, I know you'll be there. I'll definitely be there. So we'll get to rub shoulders again. And and I'm looking forward to meeting a lot of the people who are watching this show that I feel like I've become friends with, even though I've never met them. So looking forward to when we're all together again uh, and we get to really grow our community. So that's pretty awesome. So before we get into kind of your hobby history, which I want you to take everybody through so they can get to know you a little bit, let's just see who we have watching, give some hellos. We got Jay Bricks Films in the house. Hey, Jay Bricks, welcome to the show. Jason Pringle, my man. And Jason Pringle's a chef in Banff, Banff, Alberta. Howdy, y'all. Beautiful day in sunny, cloudy, rainy, frosty Banff. Yeah, it was it was cold here in Calgary to do J- today, too, Jay. Ernie, welcome to the show. Vegas, 2-0 over Vancouver. Well, I went heavy on Vegas in my daily fantasy sports today, so I'm okay with that. Thanks for the updates, guys. Please keep me posted throughout the show. Uh, Steve Elmore, welcome to the show. Charles, welcome, Charles. Charles is going to be my guest on After Hours in a few hours from now. Because I'm Carlos, Carlos, Carlos was my guest on After Hours last Saturday. And guys, you definitely want to check out his channel. He ha- he posts videos and he does some live streams as well. I'm just going to take a second because he had on uh, yesterday, yesterday, I believe, he had on Josh Johnson from uh, Cardboard Chronicles and Card Ladder. And it was probably my favorite video Carlos has ever done. So I recommend you go watch that. Really informative. And he does his uh, mail day videos as well, which are always entertaining. So check out the Because I'm Carlos YouTube channel. Terry Fortune, welcome to the show. Hi, Jays. There you go. Orvi, welcome to the show. Happy Saturday night to you too, Jason Pringle. Yeah, so it's nice thing having Justin on because you notice all those cards behind him. And uh, it's just extra eye candy for the episode. So check it out. We got full nameplates and everything. Tim Heacock in the house. Chili Chow, how are you tonight? Welcome to the show. Anonymous Facebook user. Um, I'd love to know who you are. Send, Put another comment in. Let me know who that is. I'm sure I know you. It'd be great to be able to, um, to address you by name. Good evening to you too. Dominic LaRouche, welcome to the show. Another Facebook user. I don't know, guys, I'm going to just put this on quickly. I know I do this all the time, but it's in the ticker right now. If you are on Facebook and your name isn't showing up, go to StreamYard.com slash Facebook. Click that big blue button. You only ever have to do it once. And that will allow me to know who you are and allow us to communicate a little bit more intimately, which is always very nice. Let's go back to upcoming episodes on the stream. DD Kiss. Hey, Justin. Damaris is watching. There you go. All right. So, and I want to thank Justin for coming on because it's, and I do this every time, but it is important. You know, I bring on all these guests every time. This is episode 41. So this, the library of episodes goes back to April and I've been doing this every Wednesday and Saturday. So if any, if you guys like the show, if you're new to the show, first of all, thank you to Justin for bringing more guests, more, more viewers on. So thank you to you, Justin, for that. Thank you to the new viewers for joining us tonight. And I'll just say, if you haven't subscribed to the YouTube channel, if you'd consider that, I'd greatly appreciate it. So check that out. 
and um, and, and welcome to Sports Cards Live. Matt, 14K, Golden Boy Stern, shoot the poop. There you go, exactly. Hey, it's just a nicer way of saying it. I say to my guests, you know, we try not to swear on the show. It slipped a couple times, but I do say, if I ever get Gary V on the show, no holds barred. He can swear all he wants if he comes on. I might challenge him, but we'll see. Got to get him first. Al G, welcome to the show. As always, Tim Marin. Hey, guys, looking forward to, tonight, to the insight tonight and how-tos. I have school loans I'm still paying. Need the side hustle. Well, so one of the great things about, you know, I, I read a lot of comments all over the internet, people. You know, really even up until a couple months ago, it was a very common comment to hear, you can't make money in the hobby. You can't make money in the hobby. Well, you can make money in the hobby. You just have to be a little savvy about it. And Justin's managed to build a business and feed his family with the hobby. So we'll get into that. Steve Elmore, hello to you. Jeff McMahon, hello to you. Card Currency, good evening, y'all. Hope everyone is doing well. Look forward to another wonderful interview. Thanks for joining. Gregor's 15, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Paul Cashman, you know it, Paul. We'll be doing After Hours tonight, too. You'll get your third hour yet again. Colin Murray, thank you for joining. How are you? Frank Quelo, hello, Card Currency. Look at all those cards back there. Yeah, he's got a great backdrop for the show. I, I when, when we met last night in the studio here, I said to him, I go, Justin, is that where you're going to be tomorrow night? Because... Uh, I mandate that you be there tomorrow night because that's a great backdrop. It only makes sense, right? So It only makes sense. Justin, welcome to the show. Hi, guys. Looking forward to it. Looking forward to having you, Justin. Thank you for joining. And we have, that was Scott Koish, Newfie guy. Welcome to the show, Scott. I'm not sure my profile still isn't showing. I did it. Then. Okay, well, hopefully it works out. Barry Ma from ComC. Welcome to the show, guys. If you don't know ComC, you do. Everybody knows ComC by now, but check it out. Barry is there. The Canadian uh, office manager there, I believe, Barry. Sorry if I don't know your exact title, but Barry's awesome. Thank you, Barry, for joining. And Joe, welcome to the show as always. Happy to be here. Happy to have you, Joe. A lot of Richter there. Yeah, Justin lives in New York. Justin is a Rangers guy, but we will get to more of that later. All right, we've welcomed everybody, guys. Thanks for joining. So, Justin, why don't you take us through your hobby history a little bit let us know kind of what took you from how did you become a fan a sports fan what sports are you a fan of what do you collect why do you collect what you collect and then hey, take us through even to kind of like how you transition from being a collector into being somebody who makes his living this way and before you do let's just say good evening to Yamwax. yam welcome to the show as always justin over to you my man let's hear it Awesome. Thanks. Hello, everybody. Um, yeah, so it's a lot to unwrap there. I guess 20, 25 plus years of collecting, selling, wheeling and dealing, if you will. Um, you know, it really started, honestly, with my family. You know, my grandfather, when he was alive, I collected with him. We opened packs, diehard Rangers and hockey family through and through. Um, so that's kind of what started the passion and just the following of the hockey and, and Rangers in general. Um, you know, over the years, obviously high school, college, you don't have as much money, you don't have time to collect, but I still loved hockey and sports in general. And I really tried to follow that path with um, my major of sports management and business in college. And then I was able to luckily get my foot in the door at Steiner Sports, a company that I learned a lot from. I got it really intersected my collecting and passion for the cards into the more professional role and, um, you know, a more corporate kind of scene where I learned a lot and then eventually left there and now have um, 
for the past seven years, my own small but growing uh, full service consignment company here in New York. So, Justin, what was your uh, education that kind of um, like, did you go to school? Did you take business in school, anything like that to prep yourself for this? And, 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 and once you answer that, let's get into how did you actually get your job at Steiner? Yeah, um, I went to a school down in Maryland, um, Towson University, and they had uh, what they called a kinesiology program. Basically, it was a sports management major with a minor in business. So we did a lot of um, networking. We did some traveling to um, some sports teams um, and just got to interact with some of the upper management there and just get some background on how they they branded themselves and how they did some marketing. So that was an area where I tried to learn you know, just how to interact properly and put yourself in a position to capitalize on some opportunities, whether it was business or networking and, and all of those type of things. Um, the knowledge in terms of the cards and the memorabilia really came just from experience, um, going to shows when I was younger, knowing what I'm looking at. And then Steiner really kind of bridged that gap for me in terms of proper processes, the auction world, um, how to how to work a signing with an athlete properly and take care of them and get the product done correctly. Um, so I tried to really get a well-rounded um, view of what's going on in the, in the industry as a whole, not just cards, but I also have some knowledge in game used and game-worn memorabilia, um, autographs, signed baseball certificates, all those sort of things that um, I can touch base and and take advantage of opportunities, whether it's buying or selling, or especially the consignment business that I have going on now. So you're pretty well rounded. I mean, I think I think of the vendors that are all at the the expo and the national, and you see guys that are they're all cards or they're all memorabilia. There's not that many that actually kind of do it all, but from your experience at Steiner, and if anybody doesn't know, can you explain what Steiner is? Because Steiner is a pretty well-known brand in the hobby, right? And Agreed. and getting that job there was probably a, a major stepping stone for you. So explain to us, how, because I know the answer, but I, I think it's cool. Tell us how you got your job there, and then really just give us the, the elevator speech on what Steiner does. Yeah, the truth is, you know, just like... Um... I took an opportunity where I actually grew up and went to high school with um, a girl whose father was the head trainer for the New York Knicks at the time from, I believe, the late 70s to the late 90s. And they were friends, family friends. And then he really helped get my foot in the door for um, one of Steiner's internship programs over the summer when I, while I was in college. And, you know, I tried to take advantage of that. I worked hard. I did what I needed to do and just proved that I belonged and was competent and, um, you know, could try to make a difference and help that company earn more money, right? Um, so luckily, after that internship, they offered me a full-time position out of school. I graduated in 08, and I was there full-time like two weeks later. So, you know, and from there, it was an interesting time in 2008, um, about six months in after I got there full-time, the economy collapsed in the U.S., so I basically went from working in their auction department as someone that was trying to list 40, 50 items a day to someone, I guess, with my feet to the fire, trying to run the entire department and, you know, grow it from where it had kind of collapsed to. Um, so, yeah, again, just learning on the job and learning some skills, everything from 
from Photoshop and how to present images and items of memorabilia properly to to how to work with you know larger companies that we're trying to raise money for charity auctions for. So it was uh, it was definitely a steep learning curve, but it was a great experience for sure. And, and you're using those skills that you that you picked up working at Steiner today in your own business. Would, would you say, and this is just a question I just kind of thought of, but would you be doing you, what you're doing now with your company if you didn't have that, that Steiner experience? Like did the Steiner experience kind of prop you for what you're doing now? A hundred percent. It's, um, it's base. I'm basically in a lot of ways doing exactly what I was doing there just now for myself. And, um, again, I wasn't trying to invent the reinvent the wheel or anything, but I was trying to take what I learned at Steiner, approve upon the good ideas, learn from the mistakes and make some changes and, um, just try to be as efficient as possible and, uh, and grow my business with that knowledge. Cool, man. Cool. All right. A couple of comments I want to address here. Footy Cards 32 says, Hi, Jeremy, love your show. Cheers all the way from, from sure. Cheers from all the collectors in Australia. Footy Cards, that's wicked, man. Thank you for uh, thank you for joining tonight. I spent a year in Australia in 1990-91, right out of high school to age myself. And uh, so I actually found cards when I was there in somewhere in Sydney. I forget. I was buying Skybox basketball cards there uh, at some hobby shop. Uh, but and I managed to make my way around that country. So uh, love your country. Welcome to the show. And really nice to hear that you guys are, are enjoying it. And so hello back to all of you there. Uh, Joe says to you, uh, to you, Justin, cool to have collected with your grandfather and then translate that early passion into a viable career. That is pretty cool. I mean, really, if you think about it, those early days with your grandfather is what put you in this direction. So it's uh, crazy. A hundred percent. Thank you. 100%. I give him, you know, credit if you want to give it, look at it that way. Um, you know, I still have all of the sets that he and I collected together. And, you know, it's just something that I hold uh, near and dear to me. So I, uh, I appreciate that. Right on, right on. King Zach says, I uh, can't wait for Charles later. Yeah, we'll have Charles on in after hours. Uh, that'll be great. We're going to we're gonna focus on Justin right now, but uh, King X, can't wait to see you there later on. And then here's the, uh, oh, I want to say hello to Gizmo. Gizmo, welcome to the show. So here's a great comment by uh, Card Currency because Justin, this is really going to segue us into the next uh, sort of topic, which is your business, and let's learn a little bit about it. Um, really, I'm going to just a general question, which will will answer. You can answer it and Card Currencies at the same time. But tell us about your business. What does your business look like? Give us the the bird's eye view of what what it is exactly. Yeah. So. Again, I think I said before, I look at it as a full service consignment company. Um, we take people's collections and we basically help them facilitate selling it. So, you know, we deal with a lot of people that have either inherited collections or that are large volume buyers directly in the industry um, that simply don't have the time to process and or sell 100% of their inventory. Um, so we, what we try to do is we, we don't have a physical location in terms of a storefront. We have a large eBay store. We do a lot of private sales. And when I initially started the company, after I left Steiner, um, you know, it was run out of my one-bedroom apartment with one rack full of some cards and memorabilia that I had at the time. And it's really, over the last seven years, it's been an interesting 
drive for forcing it to become something that's really um, been worthwhile and that I can help support my family with. So it's been great. So tell us a bit then, Justin, about sort of like, um, where do you, where do you actually conduct the business? Uh, do you have staff? Do you like, like, what, what does a day at work look like for you right now? Yeah. Initially the business was out of the house or the apartment. Um, and about three years ago, I actually started leasing a real warehouse space. Um, so right now I have three full-time employees. We have a 1400 square foot warehouse and we basically have it set up in stations. I try to get as much of an assembly line uh, system going as possible. We have a shipping station, a scanning station. We have a main open um, huge room that we do all our processing with. We're photographing, organizing, um, editing images, all of that sort of uh, labor goes on there. And then we have a larger back room with you know, industrial size racks where everything is skewed and inventoried um, to make it as efficient as possible when orders do come in that we can pick them and ship them quickly. So, so you have a, you have a process in place then, right? Like it's not, you're not just kind of all scattered about it. You, and I mean, I've seen you walking around expo buying up lots of cards. So you pick up a lot of cards, you take it back to to New York, you take it to the warehouse and Monday morning when the staff comes in, it's, it's process, photograph, like it process the items into inventory. You've got, you've got a skew system going on. Is it, is it like a scanner type of system? Like you would see in, in several warehouses. Is, are you, are you, do you have that level of technology? We, we don't yet. It's something that we've looked into and I have had experience with that type of system. Um, you know, personally, it's very interesting that it depends on the consigner. It depends on the collection that we get in personally, too. But we turn over inventory so quickly um, that to have to put it into, you know, another online database and extract it out at some level, I think that we move quicker with the system that we have in place. Um, and again, that's something from Steiner where I saw what was going on on the consignment end with some issues with items getting um, shipped accidentally thinking it was another item. So we've kind of cleaned some of that up in, again, simple ways, but it's made us much more efficient. Um, and the efficiency is really something that I try to harp on every day and try to look, what can we do here? What's the better way to do this or that? Um, because again, on some levels, if we're not dealing, we're not dealing with, you know, Mike Trout super fractors, unfortunately yet, but we're, we are trying to process through as much inventory as we can. Um, especially right now with the way that the market is going, we're trying to ride the wave and, um, you know, just, just bring in as much revenue as possible. Well, I like that you say you're not dealing in, in Mike Trout super fractors Most yet. Yeah, you're not right. not yet, right? But and I know there's only one of those, so it'll be tough to ever get that. But hey, there are a lot of big cards out there, and uh, I, I just I thought that was cool that you said yet. So uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. The other thing that that I like about this show sometimes is when the the viewers kind of steer the ship for me. So the next question I was going to ask you, Justin, was really like, how did you grow your business from that first kind of week after working at Steiner and opening up your company? to where you are today and card currency has the basically stole, stole the question right out of my mouth how did you get your first clients reaching out to people you know for their collections or did you start buying and selling your own cards and then moved into consignments and with that do you do you guys only do consignments or do you buy and sell for yourself as well 
Yeah, I'll answer, answer that last question first. We definitely do both. We take in a lot of consignments and we also buy and sell and, and flip and hold some pieces for um, down the line for investment purposes um, to let them rise in value. It really started out when I first hit the ground running, it was really just using my friends and connections that I had to find deals to buy and flip and sell. And as I went on and as I started talking deeper about what I was doing and leaving Steiner, I started hearing from people nonstop that they just needed help or they had items that they didn't know enough information about to sell properly. So that's where, again, in my mind, my well-roundedness and experience in a lot of these different areas has come into play to not only help my company, but really the whole goal is to help other people and consigners that give me their items to realize as much money and value out of their collections as possible. Um, so that's really where it all started. And it's, it's just, and I think I told you this briefly last night, Jeremy, I'll just for full transparency. I mean, I haven't spent a dime on advertising looking for consigners. It's really been word of mouth, having a great relationship with person A and then connecting me with person B and growing slowly and steadily that way. Um, it's helped me keep the integrity of the company. It's helped me keep um, the ability to really work with who I would like to work with, who I know is um, the right people to be doing business with and um, just keep, I guess, the trains on the track that the train on the track that way. Right. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, so you mentioned the word integrity, which does kind of uh, trigger a couple questions that I had for you. So I see Joe's got a great question. We're going to get to your question after this, Joe. So, you know, you are a full service consignment company. That's kind of what you how, how you pitch yourself. Um, there are other full service consignment companies out there that, that you're competing with that are, that are uh, just to be frank, much more well known than, than your company is. We've got the PWCCs, we've got the probe scenes, and these are these are hobby, you know, heavyweights, let's say. But these hobby heavyweights, they're constantly being scrutinized and they're constantly coming. Uh, you know, there's there's constantly um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for uh, controversy surrounding them. Because of, you know, people think that there's shell bidding going on. People think that there's card trimming going on. All these things that most people are aware of. If you've been in the hobby for a year or so now, you know about these, these issues that are out there. Because wherever there's money, there, there's people willing to be fraudulent to get it. And so one of the things that I've done with, with the bigger ones, the PWCs and the Probesteins, if I send them my cards, I'm not going to use myself in this example. If somebody out there sends them their cards to sell, they are then, there's potentially some motivation for them to bid on their own items or to have a friend or a family member or some associate bid on their items with that consignment company in order to get more money for them to to bid the, the number up so that somebody else will still be the high bidder and buy that card for more than they otherwise would have if you weren't shilling your auction. So I want like I want to I want you to I want to give you the opportunity to explain to people kind of what your thoughts are on that whole that negative stigma that is attached to to those large competitors of yours and how you deal with that personally with your consignment clients. Yeah, I think it's um, I think it's a terrible situation in a in a multitude of different ways. I think it it messes with the market in general right off the bat. If you're showing realized prices that aren't actual sales or what 
you know, people were actually bidding against real buyers for. So it just skews the market in that way right off the bat. Um, and it's, it's something that I am very aware about, I'm concerned about on a day-to-day basis. And it's partly why I try my best to vet anybody that I do enter into a consignment agreement with, right? I look at it directly as a partnership with me and my company. And I don't want anything like that going on that is going to affect the business in general or the integrity or cause anybody else and buyers specifically to have concern, right? Um, Specifically in my personal consignment agreement, we have something that states that bidding on your own items or having someone bid on your own items basically on your behalf that don't intend to pay or um, naturally purchase the item is prohibited. Um, For full transparency, I mean, early on, like maybe two years into the company, we had a situation where a consigner literally told me that night or the morning after that he won some of his own items. So it was a situation where I literally took down everything else that he had and drove to him the next day and returned the every item he had with me to him. And it was just a situation where it's just not a path I want to go down. I don't think there's a winner in any of those situations. Um, so yeah, look, it's tough. It's tough because you're never going to be able to 100% eradicate that and prove that, um, you know, Billy's cousin from, you know, across the country isn't bidding on anything. It's just the truth. Um, But I can definitely try to take steps to know who I'm dealing with and just make sure that I deal with that in the most, um, the best way possible. I love it, man. I I love the story that you drove everything back to this guy because you just didn't want to do business with him anymore. I mean, because I asked the question, what do you do about it? But there's really no easy answer because unless you hire a private investigator to investigate every auction you're, you're holding, how do you ever really know if somebody is doing this? And that's the biggest challenge that these big monsters in the hobby, the PWCs and Probesteins are up against because they've got hundreds of consignment clients and those consignment clients can open up another eBay account and place a bid or get their cousin to place a bid or get their buddy or their sister or their wife or their husband, whatever, to place bids. That is a, that's a really difficult thing for them to be up against and they're constantly accused of it. And, and then what happens is a lot of the people in the hobby who don't really understand how the hobby works a lot of the time, they think it's PWCC that's shilling the auctions themselves. And, you know, there's been accusations of that over the years. And I mean, maybe they did it at one point, who knows, but I kind of can't see them doing it because, you know, it's just not worth it to, to risk your whole business, in my opinion. Uh, yeah. Why would you risk your whole business to make a few bucks on a couple auctions one month when you know, you're looking to do this for, in, for the long term? And especially with those guys. I mean, these guys have been around so long. So you know, I, I guess the thing is with, with your company, because you're smaller, and I, I assume you aspire to grow your business. Is that a fair assumption? A hundred percent. I mean, it'd be foolish to say that that wasn't the goal at the end of the day, right? Um, But I think the system I have in place, I've really let some of these consigners kind of guide 
me and our company in terms of how they want to handle some items, right? You know, I have a lot of clients that run straight auctions, but I also have a lot of clients that we put items up in the store, buy it now for. So it lets them protect the items a bit. It lets us know that these sales are legitimate and nothing weird or shady is going on. Um, and just to touch back on the last point, you know, you can see that these huge, huge companies that are some of the biggest names in the hobby, they're dealing with this same shilling potential issue still, right? And constantly. So, and trust me, the value of some of the cards and items that they're dealing with, unfortunately, it it attracts that potential and that suspicion in a way, if you want to call it from other people in the hobby. But, you know, I've always had the the approach that why would you want to do wrong by somebody for one or two items when you could have a relationship with them for, like we do for a decade and both make way more money than one or two little scams going on, right? Um, but again, that's that's just my personal viewpoint, I guess. No, and that, that's that's great to hear. I mean, it's you know, I know I know you personally, so I I know you. I trust you. I I would vouch for you anytime. Um, so you know, I'm not concerned about your integrity in the hobby, but you are in that same business as some of these bigger guys who have been you know in the in the face of controversy. Who you know they're they're accused of it constantly. Yeah. Um, I, I see people on YouTube saying that oh you know. PWCC, they trim their cards and they show their auctions. Well, no, they don't. They don't do that. I mean, I, I can't say it. I, I don't. How can I say that without watching them with my own two eyes over the course of their business? But it just doesn't make sense. The people doing it are their clients. Their clients are the ones who are committing this fraud, if you will. Mm -hmm. It's not those companies themselves. So I know some people won't buy cards from PWCC or ProScene because they're afraid they're being shilled or they're trimmed. Well, in my best estimation, maybe 1% of, of, of all their auctions are questionable for some reason or other. Jump well, in though. Yeah, I appreciate that point. And, um, you know, it's just like anything else, right? 1%, there's always bad apples, right? I think 99% of the people I've met and dealt with in this hobby have been amazing, great people with, you know, a passion for cards and autographs, right? And then you have 1%, just like in any walk of life, in any job, in any area that, you know, uh, cause problems, I guess, if you want to put it that way. Um, and and your, to your other point about why would a company like that engage in a practice like that? It completely doesn't make sense because then you have the grading companies too that if they couldn't tell a card was trimmed or altered, then how do you expect someone or a consignment company to to know that as well? It's in a slab. It's already been viewed by another professional company that we know has a long standing in the hobby. Um, so it's just, you know, when you trickle it down and expand out the viewpoint that way, it just doesn't make sense that one of these large companies is purposefully engaging in that, right? Yeah, and and I don't want to I don't want us to come across to the viewership right now that we're saying that that everyone in this hobby that we've spoken of tonight is squeaky clean. Uh, we don't know that. I don't know that that neither of these bigger players have ever done anything that might be you know unsavory. Um, but I don't. It just doesn't make sense to me that they would do it repeatedly and continually. Uh, especially when they've been, you know, there's been all sorts of uh, investigations that have gone on. Yeah, you'd at least, think, you at least would hope not, right? Right. I think it's just important for people to understand that it's it's most often not those guys that are doing it. It's their it's their consignment clients that are doing it because that can be a lot easier. So to anyone out there who's thinking about consigning to these guys or or to Justin or to anybody, don't bid on your own auctions. You know, if and when you get caught, 
you're you know you're gonna just be shamed out of the hobby altogether most likely so okay uh let's get back to joe's question a bit off topic and then we'll kind of come back full circle because we got some comments rolling but joe had a great question are clients who have inherited collections usually more surprised that the collection is worth more or worth less than they expected it's a good question i've dealt with a lot of people that when I come across clients that have inherited collections, they just, most of them just don't know the market at all. So it's really up to me to kind of walk them down the path of what the best plan is for them based on the items that they have. Um, and it also, again, like I said before, about letting them kind of lead me in the right direction to help them properly. Some people have a basement full of items and they just need it gone as quickly as possible for as much money as they can get. There's other clients that, they maybe have inherited something from their father and they know a bit more about it and they have more sentimentality to it. And then we set up a different plan for them. Maybe we're doing set prices and buy it nows and maybe they're more financially stable and they don't need the money right away. Um, and they just want to maximize getting top dollar for everything. So it really depends. And I let the people kind of, um, you know, you know, help, help me help them. Right. Yeah, because ultimately they're going to be looking for you for guidance, but you need to understand their position, their situation to figure out the best approach for them. So Correct. kudos to you for doing that. You're really like a, a professional services provider in this case. Um, you know, it's uh Yeah, it's at the end of the day, my company really is a service company, 100%. You know, it's just a service company that luckily I know how to process and ship and sell and the platforms to uh, facilitate that. Exactly. Card Currency says, word of mouth is the best. So big ups to you. Sounds like you keep the energy right. Yeah, I agree with that. Tell us quickly, just on that, uh, Justin, like how many consignment clients do you have? If you want to divulge this information, like yeah. I know the guys we've talked about have thousands, if not tens of thousands of consignment clients. Yeah. How about yourself? Are you, uh, are you relatively small? Are you growing? How is How has the trajectory been going for you? Yeah, as of right now, I have... About two dozen dedicated, consistent, every two weeks, every month consigners. Um, on the through the course of a year, there's probably five to six unique large collections that come in. Um, again, most of them are through you know um, just friends and people that I know in the industry or other current consigners that are saying, listen. I have a friend, they need a lot of help or they inherited this or um, something like that where they're just one-offs. Um, and sometimes those can be some of the most you know, lucrative collections in terms of the quality of the items, the quantity of the items, and uh, obviously the value too. And um, so right here, Charles jumps in. Charles says, how did your business get the following through word of mouth or through advertising? So you mentioned earlier, you haven't spent a dime on advertising. Charles, you might've missed that. But um, I guess what my question is, how is your referral business? And you know, you've been doing this for seven, eight years now. Is your referral business starting to really become your main source of new business? Like, like a real estate agents would, or is it, uh, is it been you out there just kind of making relate, you know, forging relationships at card shows and, and that sort of thing? Yeah, it's been a combination of both, right? I mean, it takes time to establish some relationships. And it's also it takes a lot of trust, at least in my mind, to hand people over 
$50,000 worth of collectibles, right? And say, here, please do right by me. Um, please get me fair market value for my items. So, you know, there's people that I've just started to work with over the last, let's say, year or two that I've known for eight, 10 years. And now maybe they're in a different position and they have more inventory that they can't handle or they have a kid now and they just don't have the amount of time that they used to have. So by me and my team doing this full time, we're able to really... Um, you know, handle that portion of the the items for a lot of people. I just want to mention, you say my team and, and you have three full-time employees. So that's impressive. I mean, I know you're married, you've got young children, one yep. or two? Two. Two? Yep. Two. You got two young kids, yep. just like myself. Under four. Um, yeah. Yeah. I got two under four as well. <laughs> and uh, and so you're you're earning a living you're feeding your family, your wife, your two kids, yourself. I don't know what, of course, I don't understand your whole situation. I got but, a dog. Yep. Yep. All that. Yeah. But you know, you're, you're, you're feeding your family, your wife's hope. I don't know what your wife does. Doesn't matter. Um, but you're also, you're also helping three other people, your employees who are paying their rent, their mortgages, whatever, what else. So, so you've actually, you, you've really built a, a wonderful business here, a small business compared to some of the others, but you've managed to do that. And I think that's, that's just, that's just awesome, man. Congratulations for that. It, when you have employees, that's responsibility. You, you know, you're you're changing the world. I mean, it might sound crazy to some people, but you are. When you have employees, they rely on you to keep the business going. They rely on you to keep on grinding and finding more business and hopefully growing so they can make more money too. So kudos to you for doing that. You know, and you. the other thing is that in, in this business, as we know, it's really thrived during the pandemic. So when a lot of people, and you mentioned to me, you were concerned when this first hit, but it was the exact opposite happened, as we all now know, with four months of hindsight. Um, I want to get, let's just burn through a few comments here, because there's a lot of stuff in here, some really great comments. So uh, Bromf says, to piggyback on that topic of shilling, do you think eBay should have a metric of not only sold auctions, but actually paid auctions? I mean, no brainer, yes, Bromf, no brainer, yes. That would change that. That would make eBay's sold data so much more reliable, so much more important. Um, it could be a big deal. It would be very much a, an important change that we, I think, a lot of us want. I know the, I know uh, Chris McGill from uh, House of Jordans and Card Ladder is really lobbying for that, and I think um, you know I'm going to join him on that for sure. Uh, hello, the card collector, another youngster in the hobby. Welcome to the show. Uh, yeah, card currency agrees with Bromf. Yeah, for sure. We need that. We need that for sure. Yep. Agree. Paid items would be nice. Yes, it would alleviate a lot of the shilling accusations to know what actually gets paid for. Because now you know you, you know, if it's not paid for, all of a sudden, if you have a lot of auctions where your your buyers aren't paying for it, people are gonna automatically assume that it's been shilled. It would, yeah, it would certainly help with comps, as card says. Carlos says, BM, I believe they have some of that data, but similar to the real best offer prices, eBay prefers to make it look more like items are selling for more dollars. Yes, they are on the buy it now or best offers, but in terms of auctions that don't get paid for, we don't really see any of that. eBay doesn't seem to communicate that or to change or update those older auctions that never got paid. And it would take some time, right? It would actually take the seller filing a non-paying a non bidder complaint and all that sort of thing. Carlos goes on to say there's every incentive for them to show higher comps to push higher future sales, which if, you know, every incentive except integrity, every incentive except um, just, you know, honest transparency. So unfortunately, I guess money talks. 
Colin Murray says, what percentage of the auctions are consignment versus items from a collection you buy? There's a good question. Justin, can you uh, can you give an answer to that? Yeah, I would say right now we're about 60% consignment to 40% um, owned by my company. Um, I got to say in the past year or so, the amount, you know, the number of consigners hasn't changed dramatically. You know, I add one or two guys, a few guys a year that are in terms of my consistent guys, but the quantity of product that those relationships have started to um, bring into our warehouse has jumped exponentially. So again, just like we're touching on the relationship portion of this, um, of this, right? You know, you get more comfortable, you start getting a nice check every month, you want that check to grow, right? So you're going to hustle harder, you're going to give me some better stuff, you're going to um, want to push more items through the process. And it's just it's naturally evolving that way. And I like it I like to, um, I try to be slow and steady, and I'm fine with that. So and just to tell a story about about what about the, your ties right into to Colin's question here. I remember probably two years ago, Justin, I was I was at the expo and I said to you, before you leave, man, I want to I'm going to give you some cards to sell for me. Well, mm-hmm. you left. <laughs> you left. I'm still embarrassed. Yep. You, you you left and then you called me like, oh man, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Well, the yep. next expo, I believe it was. We, you didn't leave. We met up and uh, and we sat in the cafeteria for a good hour at the end of the show. And you looked through the box and I was going to first I thought, well, maybe you'll just buy it from me and then you can own it and sell it yourself. And we went through that process. I don't know if you remember sitting there. I'm sure you remember. You know, I'm trying to come up with a number. You're looking at it. You're waiting for me to come up with a number. It's difficult to do. And at the end of the whole thing, we negotiated. We didn't get anywhere. And then I said to you, but wait, will you just take this on consignment? You're like, yeah, sure. Okay, well, what a waste of time. That was just take it on consignment. I can be patient to wait for my my proceeds. So- you did. We've done, like I said before, and in full transparency to the viewership, you know, we've done business. You have sold uh, cards for me through your business, and and I was more than pleased with the results. And and not only the results, but your your customer service and your reporting. Your reporting was excellent. So I want to give you kudos for that. Thank you. Uh, Brom says to Carlos, "That's why I feel eBay won't have transparency, despite how much money is at stake at this point in the hobby." Carlos agrees because uh, the tough part of the hobby, there's so little accountability. Yeah, we're in a we're in a hobby that functions like a stock market in a lot of ways. You know, we're buying and selling assets that are, you know, rising and falling in values all the time. But there's no regulation. There, there's none. There's no regulation in our hobby, and I don't know how we implement that, but. Um, Uh, That's a whole, that's another discussion for another time. I I could just jump in real quick, you know, to your point, there's especially now, right? So much volatility, you're seeing cards jump two, three, 10 times their value that they were a few months ago. So it's, it's an interesting time. And just on the point of the eBay transparency, right? So a lot of times, let's say you have any item, a high-end item, a regular uh, lower priced item that technically sells but doesn't get paid for a lot of times that item gets relisted again the exact same card right so now you have a situation where the same card's been listed or technically sold two three four times but a real transaction's never taken place there um so again for ebay to not be able to tell you what a real transaction is or is not in a lot of cases i think is something that i would like to see them get figured out as well 
for sure. And they're hearing this. I know they've been told that they need to start showing sold uh, amounts at, and, and not only sold amounts, but cards that were paid for a little indicator, a little icon saying this auction, this transaction was completed. Uh, feedback was left both ways and money moved because they can, I don't know if they can still tell through PayPal, but they sure could at some point. Cardboard Max, welcome to the show. Saw you earlier today on another channel. That was cool. Uh, yeah, Carlos says, you know, change comes when it affects the bottom line for them. And everyone always says, hey, if we don't like it, let's talk with our wallets and stop shopping on eBay or stop shopping with certain sellers. But we're, for lack of a better term, we're all sort of addicted to the to this cardboard. We love them. We don't want to stop buying. We don't want to stop buying. And then cards go down in value. And you're missing some great deals. And maybe there's nothing wrong with that particular auction. And you're like, ah, oh, I wish I would have grabbed it. It would take a real concerted effort. We'd basically have to walk out like the Milwaukee Bucks did, and the whole and both the NBA and the NHL did over the last couple of days to have it to have it, any change really happen. And how are we going to organize that? There's tens of thousands of collectors, so that's going to be tough to do. Joe says we've all had that feeling at the end of an auction where we won, but we look at the bidding pattern and we have an uneasy feeling. I have one comment on that, Joe, and that is. And this is just, it's kind of become my my defense mechanism to be able to, to cope with the hobby and not let that bother me, not get that uneasy feeling. And that simply is, and a lot of people are going to think I'm crazy for this, but if I put in a, I snipe my auctions. I don't make a bid until there's two seconds left. Two seconds, that's it. And I put in my highest bid. And if the, let's say it's a card, I, I want that card. It's at $250 as an example. I might put in a $600 bid, even though it's only $250 right now. And, you know, the honest right, the honest winning bid might be $301, but the shield up winning bid might be $501. As long as I get that card for under that $600 max bid I make, I'm going to be happy and I'm, I'm not even going to look at the bidding history because I just don't, I'd rather almost not know it was shield because I want the card. And if, 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 if I'm dealing with a, an unsavory seller, it's unfortunate. It's costing me money. But if I want that card, I want that card. And I'm not talking about like, uh, I'm not talking about the, the commodity cards that you can buy at 10 different ones every day. I'm talking about rare cards that are tougher to find. And of course, I'd rather not get shilled, but it's not even something I really think about when I'm out there bidding. And I'm not telling anyone out there to to, to be like me in that. I mean, if, if it's something that concerns you guys, by all means, don't bid on, on auctions you think are being shilled. But if I want a card, I mean, and I get it for my bid, it's it. I guess the way to say it is, I I just consider it a a part of the landscape of the hobby now with with online auctions, and I can't change it. Justin can't change it. Collectively, it's it's been impossible to change for so long. So I just kind of live with it. Justin, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it, what you're saying is 100% right. You're not justifying, if anything, unsavory is going on, right? But I think you just have to be as a bidder or my advice to bidders would say, listen, you have to be comfortable with what you're placing your bid at and know where your your max number is. And you kind of got to let the chips fall where they may, I guess, in that case, right? Um, and just stand your ground. If you, if you want to pay $100 for the card and that's it, then I would put in your $100 bid and um, and you know not think otherwise, right? And that way the shiller is going to, the shill bidding will backfire on the shiller and they'll end up winning their own auction. And you know if they don't cancel, they're going to pay final value fees and all that. And they're going to have to relist it and then people aren't going to trust them. Let them do that. I mean, 
it, it's a tough situation. It's a tough environment to transact in. And I mean, I could I could stay up all night worrying about it, just like some of you out there may, but I've just chosen to say, okay, I'm going to bid what I want to bid. And the other thing I'll say is that if the guy is shilling his auction, it's almost a it's almost like putting a reserve on it. You know, it's it's their way of protecting their their bottom value on the card. And if they feel it's worth that, you know, it's like if I were to just meet the person at a card show and they said, well, I need $500 for it. And I say, well, the next guy, he told me he'd only pay 300. He'll say, well, too bad. I want five. If I want the card, I'm going to have to pay $500. So I kind of look at it like it's almost the way that these guys are setting reserves on their auctions, even though it's elite, yeah. it's fraudulent. I, yeah. I, I, again, I don't, please don't misunderstand me, anybody. I'm not condoning it at all. I've never done it myself. I don't condone it. But as somebody who buys cards on eBay almost every day, I know I'm up against it. So I can either bow out of the hobby or just kind of accept it as part of the hobby and it costs you a few bucks every year. Yeah. And and I also just want to emphasize, I think we're on the same page when just to touch on our other point in the past is that it's not even something, honestly, that when I'm buying a card for my personal collection or for the business that I even think about. Because like we said before, 99.9% of the people are not doing anything like that, right? So of course, if you're going to be a smart, savvy collector, you want to make sure that you're aware that that is going on in very small cases. But I choose to look positively on everything. And you know, the vast, vast, vast majority of transactions has none of that going on, right? Right, for sure. Okay, Our, the next comment going in order of time, and we're about uh, 14 minutes behind on the comments, is the one that really is the, the teaser that I put out there for this episode, which is how do you balance being a collector and being a person who makes his living the hobby, I, you know, a dealer, a, consign, a consignment company, that kind of thing. So I'll put up Tim's question. He says, when someone consigns with you, if you're personally interested in something that they have, do you make an offer? Or is that unethical? Has It has to be difficult to separate your personal interest from business, which is really the theme of the show today, even though it's taken us 54 minutes to get there. But why don't we jump right into that? And then we'll come back to the rest of the comments and questions that are pouring in. Justin, tell us a little bit about, well, answer Tim's question first, and then we'll see where it takes us. Yeah, I was just going to say, there's kind of two train of thoughts I could go down with the topic. And this question was one of those avenues, right? It's a great question. Um, I really, really, really do not like the idea of me personally buying an item from one of my consigners outright in that regard. A hundred percent, it never happens with my consigners that we run auctions on. If there's a card that for some reason, let's say somebody had a Mike Richter 101 or you know a Mark Messier card that I was remotely interested in, I would just let it pass by, right? Um, you know, I want I want to take that batch of items in and do the proper process with it and run the auctions and get the items sold. Um, I have there have been circumstances where there's people that are selling things with the buy it now system, and what I do is I just find direct buyers for them in certain cases as well. Um, so I, I just don't like it. I just it's my personal opinion. Um, I don't want to be calling my consigners with weird questions, putting them in tough spots where like, you know, 
do they do they need to sell it to me for less because it's me? I, I just try to stay away from it. There's enough gray area in a lot of things that go on that I'm just like, I like to keep things as straightforward as possible. So basically you're keeping the bit you're keeping it separate when it comes to your clients but you're still a collector you're still hunting down the cards you want for your personal collection all the cards we see behind you personal collection or inventory or a combination yeah see again there's a lot of gray area right um so i personally look at everything that i buy in terms of the cards and memorabilia as an asset to the business um but a hundred percent there are cards that I buy for sentiment for sentimental value, right? Or cards that are from sets that I just love for whatever reason, for rarity, for the type of set, the year, the brand, all those sort of things. So there's in my mind a lot of assets for the business that I'm just not willing to sell right now, right? Yeah. Um, and at some point, look, at the end of the day, it is cardboard. There's a lot of other things that are important to me in life. Um, so if I had to sacrifice or needed additional money for the business for whatever reasons, there would definitely be stuff on the chopping block that would be able to be sold. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, it brings me back to when I was a younger kid. That's how I got started. I started collecting Mike Richter and some unique hockey stuff from when I was, I don't know, nine years old. Um, so and just to get into the Richter collection a little bit more, if I could, um, you know, there's 2,600 different cards made. I think I'm missing about 75 unique cards. So, you know, they're rare pieces. And if one of those popped up, I for sure would, you know, uh, be going after it. You would for sure have your company buy it for you. (laughs) (laughs) Not for uh, Yeah, I guess so. I don't know how to, you know, look, it's cardboard. It could always be sold, right? It's um, it's an asset in whether how you want to look at it, right? Um, exactly. you know, but I hear, I hear what you're saying. So when you go to the expo, cause you know, you go to the expo, you don't set up there with a booth, you're cruising the floor. You come by my booth. I'm always there set up with a booth and you hang out with me. We, you know, Justo, welcome. Great to see you, buddy. Um, when you're cruising the floor, how much time are you spending looking for cards to sell mm-hmm. in the business versus Richter's and Messier's and maybe leeches and that kind of stuff? How many, how, how do you, or are you just doing it all at the same time? Yeah, I'm really doing it all at the same time. If Again, if I see things that there's some room on or there's a collection or there's somebody that you know has a collection that they're looking to sell that I have a relationship with, I'm obviously looking to take that opportunity. Um, but again, I do my due diligence. I look through showcases. Someone like you, I've been pulled aside in Toronto several times walking down the aisle saying this guy just pulled a Richter 101 from Artifacts or... There's, you know, a George Vesna memorabilia card. Do you have that one? So again, it's just having friends, having connections, people looking out for me and what they know that I like. Um, and then also just cruising the show, looking through boxes and interacting, seeing what's available um, in bulk, really, when I'm looking to buy for the for the business specifically. Um, you know, because again, it's nice to make a little bit of money on one or two cards here and there. But, you know, I, for, in order to keep the business growing and afloat and pay bills and overhead, I need to be transacting in enough and in enough volume and dollars to, uh, to make it sustainable. 
hundred percent. When you're at the shows, like the expo again, because I, I know it because I see you there. Are you? Do you spend any time, or do you exert any effort to find new consignment clients? Um. Yeah, I think it. Again, I think it's a natural process for me in a lot of ways. Is just listening closely to people that I'm meeting and interacting with. And I got to say that going to the national and my local shows here in the states, and especially in Toronto, I mean, everyone is so friendly. Everyone there is. I guess, hardcore enough, right, to go to a huge expo and pay money to be there, whether it's a dealer or walk in the door, that we immediately have something in common and to talk about and to touch base with. Um, so it comes up naturally. People people tell me all the time, and I'm get, I get calls all the time that they need help with this, or even my you know current consigners that they just bought another deal. Do you know about this? How can we how can we facilitate selling this properly? So it just comes up naturally. Um, and again, once in a while, I'll say, "Look, I have the business. You have a shop. Do you need help?" Um, and I go from there. Awesome. Okay, let's keep going to some more questions here. I'm not sure who this is, but he says, "How is your relationship with the United States Postal Service? Do you, do you use Stamps.com or Pirate Ship? Can you answer that?" Um, yeah, I definitely I can have some input on that. I don't use any third-party shipping platforms um, because I do have an anchor store on eBay. Um, I do get a pretty significant shipping discount in that regards with the USPS. Um, I will say the the building that I'm in, I'm in more of like a normal office building with a unique kind of suite with the description I kind of gave earlier. And the post office does pick up directly from us daily. So that was a big plus for me when I was initially working out of the apartment or the house, you know, you got to load up the truck every day, you got to drop them off. And f- like I said earlier, from an efficiency standpoint, I just didn't like it. And when I moved out into the warehouse, it was like a big plus for us, you know, saved an hour, um, get more packages out, process more items. It made a lot of sense. Okay. Thank you. Legion Italia. Welcome to the show, my man. Welcome as always. What is up to you? Card Currency says eBay execs got arrested earlier this year for harassing some users. Definitely not the best run business, in my opinion, when it comes to integrity, I'm saying. Interesting. Terry says, do you have your own site platform or do you sell on eBay? I'll let you take it. Yeah, I think I can kind of answer or touch on both of those last comments or questions. Um, We do all eBay, but our eBay store is what we facilitate basically with all of our items. But I think Jeremy well knows that with Hobby Insider, um, his other website, we also use platforms like ComC for a lot of our personal deals that we buy. Um, and I'll touch base with that in a minute. In a minute, But I got to say, eBay, whether you like it or not, and everyone has their gripes or complaints or positives about eBay, in my mind, they are still the largest platform with the most eyes conducting the most transactions on a daily, weekly, yearly basis. And there's just no denying it or getting around it, whether you like it or not. Um, there's, I, in the last few years, just a site, I'll just use ComC as an example, that have come into the fray in a much uh, larger light than they were in the past that I think has definitely helped my company grow and bring in more revenue. Um, but I think from a day-to-day auction platform, eBay still the top dog by far, right? Um, and what was the comment before? Um, uh, the people, the eBay executives getting fired. That piece, yeah. or yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess that was what I wanted to touch on. I hadn't heard anything about that, but just about eBay still being the biggest platform for transactions. 
Yeah, and it does, sorry, the comment that Card Currency said wasn't getting fired, but uh, getting got or some execs got arrested for harassing some users. So I, I kind of rings a bell, but I'm not sure I heard that. But in any event, I'm not denying it's not true. Okay, uh, Terry says uh, eBay lost all integrity by hiding bidder identities, not protecting sellers, almost always siding with buyers, global shipping, and so on. Yeah, I mean, hiding bidder identities when they started to code your feedback, your your username by the feedback, uh, you know, it kind of, you get the feedback number, but now they give you a, a character, star, star, star character. And so I remember when that happened and all of a sudden you don't know who's buying things. I used to know who my competition was on certain cards. Now you, you don't know as well. Although you can still, you know, if you put enough time, you can figure out who's who if you watch it closely enough and, you know, get some information here or there. Justin says, definitely, Jeremy, bid on cards you want. You bid on cards you want are thrown at the last. Oh, the bids you want. The <laughs> you're throwing bids on cards you want at the last possible second. Thank God for Fiber Network. No doubt. Because, you know, but my biggest fear, I want to know if anyone else out there feels this way. You're looking at your phone. You're about to hit that confirmed bid with two seconds left. My biggest fear when I'm about to do that isn't that my internet goes down or that my Wi-Fi goes down or... My biggest fear is that all of a sudden my the screen of my phone is going to change and someone's phoning me and I got to like reject the call, go back to eBay and I miss the bid. That's my biggest fear is that someone's going to text me or phone me at the exact wrong time. Is that, have you ever, do you, do you, do you, uh, do you bid that way yourself, Justin? I actually don't. I put in my max bids kind of early on and I just, I try to forget about it. I have so much other, so many other things going on that sometimes I, I miss items. So I'm like, you know what? Let me get my max bid in and, uh, you know, hope, hope for the best. Yeah. Okay. And you know what? That's fine too. But I, I, I pose the question back to you. If you put in, and I guess I need to think this through, but if you put in your highest bid relatively early, someone like me, maybe not me, but someone comes around and they say, okay, you know, maybe let's say the bids at ten dollars, and you're you're putting in a bit of a hundred. So now you're the high bidder at eleven dollars. Mm-hmm. I can come in fifteen. You're at sixteen. I can come in at twenty. You're at twenty-one. Yeah. I can keep chipping away until I get to forty, and then I back out because I don't want to pay any more than forty-one dollars. And you're at forty-one now. But if I didn't chip away at your bids, and I and I sniped you at the very end, I might come in at. 20 and you're going to be 21 and now you're going to win it for 21 at the end if i didn't come in along the way and chip away i guess my point is if you put in your max bid early are you not allowing others to like other honest bidders to to chip away at at your high bid yeah i mean i guess in a sense that uh, you can look at it that way i just personally feel comfortable like this is where I want to be on the card or what I'm willing to pay for the card. And if it go, if I put in a bid of $80, $80 and it goes for 40 versus 60, personally, I just, it doesn't matter to me. Right. Um, you know, look, I obviously want to be smart and save as much as possible. I think maybe my strategy is different on, um, on a card that I'm looking at as a pure investment that I need to get in on, you know, a Luca or a LeBron or a Durant at a certain price point right now. Um, I think that might play into a factor, but you know, for a more run of the mill common card or something that, um, you know, again, for the PC, I'd probably just go that Avenue. Yeah. And then of course the risk doing it my way is that you make your bid with two seconds left. It's not high enough. You're automatic, you're, you're automatically outbid 
and there's no time left to decide if you wanted to increase your high bid. So happens to me all the time. My bid isn't good enough and I just have to walk away and say, okay, well, I, I put in my best. I didn't get it. There's always more cards to buy. All right. Uh, Brahm says, Jeremy, I agree. Sometimes ignorance is bliss. Yes, when it comes to, to you being the one, the victim of shill bidding. Charles wants to know, what's one of the weirdest things you've ever had to sell for somebody? Now, are you only sports or have you taken other kind of collectibles or other pieces of uh, value, valued items that you've had to sell for people? Yeah, I mean, I really try to stick with just the sports items because it's what I know best and have experience in. But I will say there have been one or two times where uh, larger consigners that we've we've done a lot of business with have said, listen, I got this X, Y, or Z item in. Will you take this one-off item in with the sports memorabilia? Just an item that comes to mind is was a set, a briefcase of like old harmonicas from the 20s and 30s. So again, I know nothing about that, but I wanted to do right by my consigner. We did some research and needless to say, within a week, they were sold for like $200. So it wasn't all that bad. Yeah, agree. Colin says, with no shows to make money for the full-time dealer, Dealer boycotting eBay isn't an option. So true. Great point, Colin. Chris says reserves deter bidders based on experience. Only more savvy bidders notice shillers. I certainly agree with the first comment. And I just had this conversation with somebody uh, earlier today or yesterday where they said, well, you can just put a reserve on it if you're going to sell the item. I said, well, if you put a reserve on your card and it says right on eBay, reserve not yet met, people are just not going to bid like I putting a reserve on an item you're selling on eBay is the, to me is the quickest way to uh, waste your time and really not get full value for your item. What are your thoughts on that? Do you ever place reserves on your items or is this something you would, uh, you would counsel your clients against? Yeah, hundred percent. I would stay away from it. I think early on in the early eBay days, it was something that people didn't fully understand. And I think it was something that they wanted to protect their items by setting a reserve that way. But I think from what I've heard from buyers there, they'd much more just rather see and know you're asking price up front. So what we do in that situation is we just put our buy it now price and we work from there. People can still message you. And if you have an item up at $100, they can message you and say, hey, will you take 75? Will you take 80 for it? And then you can at least have that conversation and hopefully get a deal done, right? Even if it's not the exact price you wanted. Um, and in that way, you're still doing the same thing of protecting the item and not letting it run at a 99 cent auction. Fair. Okay, man. Thank you. Georgetown Vintage says, great subject matter tonight. Thank you, GTV, for joining us. 99 goals, 99 goals. Word, I made it. You are here. Amit, welcome to the show. I didn't know that you uh, you added your name twice. That's, are you like, is that is that an homage to Bull Bull or something like that? I'm just wondering. But welcome to the show, Amit. Card Currency says, so are the cards on the wall behind you PC cards? If so, any chance we get a preview of any? Are, is, that, is that your, I mean, we, we've talked about it already. You know, it's all in the company but are these those company cards that you're holding for yourself because you really love them? And uh, is, is that the story? Yeah, hundred um, percent. You know, what I was thinking about earlier was just simply that when I try to separate the personal collection from cards that we're selling for the business right now, it's really just the sentimentality of it and, um, and what they mean to me, right? The Richter collection keeps me grounded from collecting with my grandfather while also, you know, investing in pieces that 
I hope are going to accrue in value or that have value to definitely other people because I've had to fight over some of these cards in the bids, right? Um, but I'm sure just like a lot of other people in the industry and the hobby, there's some cards on the wall behind you that if I went to sell them, there's probably not someone else that would want to pay as much as I paid, right? Um, and just like, you know, the stock market, I guess I try to keep my losses small and try to try to win big when I can too. So, yeah. Okay. I, I see here, I'm just seeing Terry made the comment that, uh, eBay executives were stalking and harassing. Okay. Thanks Terry for providing some clarity to that earlier comment. Uh, D Cabral, welcome to the show late, but better late than never D good to see you as always wants to know, do you consign raw cards or do you prefer graded cards? Great question. What, what's your position on that for in the company, Justin? Yeah, we definitely take in both uh, versions of cards. On the on the really higher end stuff that we deal with, we prefer the stuff graded um, simply to avoid any potential issues with shipping, returns, um, you know, and just throwing out an example like a Mike Trout 2011 Tops Update rookie, right? Like even if the card had a bit of a dinged corner, I would prefer to get that card graded. You know exactly what you're dealing with. It kind of sets the the level of the card and the value a bit more in stone as I look at that as like a commodity card where you can track those sales over a longer period of time and see what they're worth. But we deal in a ton of raw cards. Um, you know, a lot of our consigners, they give us great items. But a lot of them are, some of them are in the hobby full time. Some of them are also use it as a side hustle, but they also do shows and they want to keep some inventory for themselves, right? So we get in some great pieces, but we are also dealing with, I would call it maybe one level below, you know, the highest end of what a lot of people have in their, in their inventory. So we're selling everything across the board for them. And it really, you know, we sell cards from, 10, $20 all the way up to thousands of dollars. So the raw cards don't scare us. And we're not, we're not only selling the newest and greatest. We're selling cards from 2004 that we get good numbers on. We're selling fan favorite cards, Don Mattingly bat cards, Derek Jeter patch cards, um, and just a, a wide spectrum of stuff. So we, we like it all. So you you collect for yourself. You're you're a hockey guy for the most part, mm-hmm. but you're referencing baseball players here. What percent of your business? Like what percent? Of, if I were to look in your eBay store right now, what percent of the items are hockey versus baseball versus football, basketball, and other sports? Do you do you know these numbers, or do you have a gut feel for what per, what the, the the volume percentages are that in your in your experience? Yeah, again, the the inventory changes so quickly from a day to day, month to month basis that I just don't have, you know, specific tracking mechanisms for that. But I think if you look at the eBay store now, if I had to guesstimate, I would say it's probably 10% hockey and everything else makes up the bulk of it. Um, Basketball definitely, I think, moves the quickest for us in terms of time wise. But baseball, I think, is still the king in terms of volume. And, um, you know, there's more baseball produced typically, I think. Um, and that's partly why that is too, but the following is so strong and the, the heritage and the lineage of the baseball card collecting is, um, is still so strong. And you're in New York, which is, uh, you know, kind of all the sports are there. It's not just, you're not in Canada where it's going to be 90% hockey. You're, 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 like I said, you're 10% hockey. So thanks for that. I was curious, Tim Marin. Thanks for taking the question. You're welcome, sir. Terry says, Justin has hooked me up with items from past expos. Greatly appreciated. There you go. That's Terry Fortune. Legion says, any thoughts on this? Here's, here's a question that's kind of off topic, but let's let's have a chat. Any thoughts on Panini blockchain? 
I've noticed they've inserted redemption cards in immaculate baseball this year. Justin, I, I can't speak to it. Can you? I can't speak to it in too much depth. I have seen some of the promotions going on and some of the cards that they're producing. Um, the process, honestly, um, I just haven't looked into it enough. I know it's something that they've been pushing and something that I believe I read that initially you get the physical card and also have a digital copy. Um, but in terms of like hearing people speak about it and getting feedback, I just have not heard much about it. Yeah. Okay, cool. I mean, either. So sorry, Legion, we're not, we're not your guys on that, but, uh, Panini blockchain is certainly something worthy of learning about. I'm curious about it as well. Um, and I know other YouTube channels and that have spoken about it and, and looked into it further. So you may get better resources for that elsewhere. Sean Robb says, and Sean, welcome to the show. Justin, he says, do you face issues from buyers denying they received cards? Um, maybe not that specific issue. Um, things come up over time in eBay, especially when you're dealing in the volume that we are. Um, you know, you have people that will say that they ordered five cards and they only got four. You have people that say, I want a lot of, I had an instance somewhat recently that they said, um, they weren't happy with the condition of a lot of like five Mike Trout cards. They were going to return them and they only sent two of the five back. So you do have issues and there are problems with the eBay return policy and all of that. Um, I would like to see some sort of resolution to that, but eBay's policy, and I've talked to them in depth, in depth about it, is that they just have no way of proving what is really going on in that instance, right? I mean, 100% we've shipped out a card to the wrong person by accident, or we've probably left a card out of a big order, 100%. Um, but there are instances coming back the other way where buyers are returning things that are either not the right item or not the full order that they were said that they were going to return. Um, so it's a tough situation. And, you know, unfortunately, I think just like any other business, we try to factor in, you know, theft and loss of goods um, at the end of the year. So. Yeah, just like shrinkage in a normal retail sort of setting type of thing. Okay, exactly. Georgetown Vintage. These guys were kind of laughing about, uh, I think they were laughing about sniping and being out sniped or sniping and then your phone rings or something. But Georgetown says, I actually learned about sniping from Jeremy. That was probably on a, there's been a couple episodes over the past month or so where during the episode, I basically had to say, hold on viewers, one second. I got I to gotta snipe a card, two seconds left in the auction. Um, which is always kind of funny. And then they're like, hey, what, what was the card? What was the card? Yamwax um, wants to know, Justin, what's a favorite item or items in your personal? I, I kind of laugh now when I ask you about your personal collection because of, you've explained that it's all kind of under the same umbrella. But yeah. for the cards that you consider, the ones you love that, that that you have, what are what any favorites? Are they behind you right now? Um, yeah, I mean, if you look above my shoulder here, you know, some of these, a new recent one is a Richter Shield autograph from the new Leaf product. Um, there's only three shields out there of him. I have all three. Um, so there's some cards like that. And I have one piece here that I'd like to show that, again, I consider it stashed away in the PC. But again, in the future, if it needs to be sold, if I could just show this one. Yeah. Um, the first ever Lord Stanley cut autograph from, um, I believe, 0001 SP game used. So, you know, a unique piece like that to me, I don't know how it gets much better in the hockey market. Um, I know that they just released a new one a, a year or two ago from Splendor. Um, I think it sold for about 10 grand on eBay. So, um, you know, a piece like that that's stashed away and, you know, 
okay. part of the foundation, I guess. Cool. There you go. Yeah. I'm hopefully that gives you some uh, context for his collection. I, I think that's a cool piece. You've never showed, you haven't showed me that one uh, yesterday, earlier today. So that's really cool. Uh, Chris West is given a couple great pointers here, guys. Always ship with tracking if possible. I agree, but sometimes you ship a card for 20, a $20 card. You got to spend 15 on shipping. It's, it's always that question, right? But goes on to say, want to set a reserve on eBay? Make that your starting price. And I hear that, I hear that as a piece of advice, but I find that the higher you set your starting price, the lower you bids you get. So really, if you're gonna my my kind of position on it, if you're selling on eBay, you have two options. One is start the auction at 99 cents and let it ride. Let the market tell you what it's worth on the day and time that that auction is ending, because it could be different. Don't end your auctions at eight in the morning. You know, don't end them on a Friday or Saturday night when you're watching sports cards live because everyone's watching the show. You know, don't end them, right? It's a little bit different during during the pandemic, but in general, you don't want to end them at those times. And and the other, your other, your, so either let it start them at 99 cents and let them ride or put a buy it now or best offer option out there. And that way you're protecting your, your bottom line on it, but you're also allowing the people who are interested in the item to let you know what they are willing to pay and therefore what they think it's worth. Yeah, okay. Card Currency says, biggest card you have sold to date. If you can share, I would love to know. Justin. That's a good question. I should know that off the top of my head, right? Um, biggest card I've sold to date. You can put that on the back burner. Think about that for a minute. Think about that. Put it on the back burner. I should know that though, right? Well, I want to see what Legion Italia says here. He says, did you see that Alpha Investments, is that not the, uh, oh, Alpha, sorry, I'm thinking Alphabet that owns Google. Uh, so did Alpha Investments had what seemed to be a full and partial uncut sheets of next year's Upper Deck Exquisite Collections inserted in between cases on pallets of Magic the Gathering cards? I'm lost. I do not know what that's all about. You go on to say someone is in trouble, LOL. I'm sure we'll be reading about that if, if I don't even understand it, but I'm sure we'll be reading about it. Chris says, don't even get me started Started on eBay returns, total gong show. D Cabral says, thanks for answering the question about consigning raw versus great. I'm curious, what's your favorite card? He just showed it. Thank you, D Cabral. Tim says, apologize if you already tackled this, but what would you say that differentiates you from other consigners like Probe Scene, PWCC, et cetera, is your fee structure lower, quicker payments? What sets you apart, Tim? I just want to say, we did not tackle that specifically and that those are a series of great questions. And I just want to, before you answer, Justin, I'm going to let everybody know if you haven't noticed yet on the ticker right now is his Instagram uh, handle. So you can contact Justin on Instagram and there's his eBay store as well. Kramer's collectibles. So if you want to reach out to Justin, try him on Instagram. I'm guessing Justin is probably the best way to reach him or through his eBay store. You can reach him that way too. And if you want to do business with Justin, consign to him or add him to your favorite sellers, I would encourage you all to do so. Justin, back to you. Why don't you uh, let us know in your mind what differentiates you from the bigger uh, the bigger beasts in this hobby, uh, you know, the bigger consignment firms than yourselves? Yeah, it's a great question. And that's really what my goal has been from the outset was to kind of create our own niche of helping helping collectors and other dealers facilitate sales of their items. What we really try to do is we really look at ourselves as more of, I guess, a mom and pop consignment structure 
where we're working much more closely with a lot of our consigners. Um, we really try, like I said earlier, to try to build a plan for them based on their needs and what's going on. We don't just have a set, listen, we're taking every all your single cards and running 99 cent auctions. We do, we do auctions, we set um, starting prices on some items, and we also do a ton of buy it now in the store. It allows us to um, expand the types of items that we sell and make sure that we're getting the proper money for them. In my experience, especially on eBay, you know, cards do very well running 99 cent auctions if they're the right cards that people are actually interested in and there's multiple people that want them, right? Um, but I've also had experience and given it a shot running, let's say, signed hockey pucks, and they just don't seem to do as well. You might start a hockey puck of Bobby Clark that should sell, you know, for let's just say $50, but you started at 99 cents and it goes for 18. So in my mind, there's certain items and I try to direct the consigners in that regard if they have those pieces that look, this is a better structure for you. And what we actually have in place for the buy it now items is the longer the items have been up for sale, the, the larger the sale we place on them. For instance, if we have a Bobby Clark puck that's been up for a month at full price and has not sold, the start of the next month will run a 10% off sale on the item and so forth and so on, 20%, 30%, 40%, the longer the item's up there. In our mind, what's going to happen is we want to move through the items, obviously, and not just have the same recurring pieces up there forever. Um, we want to bring in the revenue for doing the work. We want to get our consigners money. And we also want the pieces to reach their actual um, sale value and level that people are willing to pay for them. Cool, man. Great answer. Thank you so much. Um, Bill says that Lord Stanley autograph is outstanding or sorry, is astounding. Congratulations. I have to agree with that. This next question from Mr. LAGN is one that I knew was going to come up, Justin. And I think I forget how we were going to share this information, but he wants to know where can I buy the display cases behind you? So guys, I know people are wondering about this because they are pretty cool. And Justin has like 13 of them in his office there, uh, on the various walls around him. So Justin, why don't you uh, tell everybody where they can find these things? Yeah, um, so I got to give a shout out to my uncle who collects collected cards in the past and really turned me on to the place that made these. It's called Carney Plastics. I believe they're in Ohio, and they're basically custom-made display cases, mirror backings, acrylic cases. They have, you know, uh, beveled notches in the in the shelves to let the cards show and display properly. I, I would recommend them. I've had a couple other buddies that have purchased a few since I've gotten mine. Um, and if you can, I'm sure you can find them online, Carney Plastics. I'm, I'm doing it right now. I'm going to, uh, I've got it right here. You got it. And if not, yeah, message me and I'll, I'll send everybody their, uh, you know, business card or contact info. Yeah. Uh, where to go? Uh, hold on. I want to do it this way for this guy. One second, everybody. Save that. Okay. There you go. Cool. I just copied it right from their website. So that's that's the website, guys. I don't know who these guys are, but if we send some business their way, why not, right? Let's spread the good word around. And uh, if anybody wants to check out, check them out, that is their website. I'll leave that up there for a couple of minutes for everybody because I, I got to think that's interesting. Um, Card Currency says, I only sell, buy it now and accept offers. Yeah, I, I hear you. I, I often do as well, but sometimes I just let a card run if I just... I want to get rid of it type of thing. And I, you know, often there, there's, I think we all have sort of cards that it's like, I'll take whatever I can get for it. 
in which case you put up at 99 cents and let it run. And some cards you really want to protect that bottom, that bottom out level for uh, because you you know what you paid and you kind of don't want to lose money on it, among other reasons, I'm sure. Great question coming up from Sean Rob Justin. He says, What makes your decision between selling on eBay versus Com C? Um, it's a good question. ComC is a website that I think is very, very useful for a variety of reasons. But eBay is something where if I think I'm going to get um, a large quantity of bids on a card starting at 99 cents, I think that's the avenue I'll go to. ComC I personally use for lower lower end items. I try to sell items between two and about $15 on Com C. It helps me get a lot of cards that have value to a lot of people, but I simply just don't have time to process and do all the work in terms of shipping. Com C handles that for us. It lets us set the prices and in our port. Um, and I've had a lot of success with it the last few years. And it's something that I'm continuously, you know, looking for the right angle. And when I get the right cards in, I definitely ship them a, sh- a shipment um, pretty much every month. Okay. Now, Sean is a veteran kind of com C seller himself. So I think he's kind of looking for that, you know, um, maybe, maybe he's looking to kind of corroborate his own approach because he sells on various platforms as well. Um, or, you know, just trying to kind of, how do you decide? Because you know, it happens all the time. You you got a box of cards and you're looking at them. You're always thinking, what, what's the best way to sell this card? Is it, do I just put it up on, on a Facebook group? Do I put it up on Instagram? Do I put do I send it to ComC? Do I send it to ProbeScene or PWCC? Or do I put it up on eBay? Or, or do I send it to Justin? Maybe you're going to become an option for some of these people watching tonight now, right? If you're looking for more business, that is, of course, which it shouldn't be. But uh, yeah, I I hope Sean that that was uh, that that helped you out at all um, with the way Justin uh, approached your question there. Uh, Michael Kohler, another uh, maybe the biggest hockey port on on Com C, says, "Hey Justin, got ten thousand rookie cards sitting around for another deal." So I guess you guys have done business before. Yep. Georgetown Vintage says, hey, team, I always notice that Jeremy is too humble to ask, so please hit the like button. Yeah, thank you, man. Thank you so much. Anybody, and I haven't said it since the beginning of the episode tonight, but um, if you're new to the show, thank you for joining. Thank you, Justin, for bringing new viewers to the show tonight. Uh, And also thank you to Charles, who's coming on after hours with me a little bit later tonight, for bringing new viewers to the show. Uh, If you have not yet subscribed to the YouTube channel, we just hit a thousand subscribers last week, which was pretty awesome. That was a big milestone, and now the next one is two thousand. So who knows when we'll get there? But maybe by the end of the year, we'll we'll see. We'll see when it comes. But um, it does help. The it helps on YouTube if you hit the thumbs up button, if you leave a comment, and certainly if you subscribe. So please do greatly appreciate that. Thank you very much, Mister Lagn. Has a question. What happens to items that you just can't sell? What and what's the most difficult kind of stuff for you to sell? Yeah, items that we can't sell. I mean, w- when we process a, a collection that we've bought ourselves, we have a, what we call different buckets that we put it in. Is it an item that we want to protect and put it by it now on eBay? Is it an item that we want to run and kind of create an event around running, let's say, 100 cards is what we try to do? We obviously try not to run you know, one or two or five items at a time. We try to create our own events and run you know, hundreds, if not 1,200 cards at a night, if we can. Um, we just get more action that way, and we see numbers rise on uh, across the board there. 
Um, items that we can't sell, we do a lot of things. We we try to just find bulk buyers for them then. You know, some of the toughest items to sell for us right now are just like bulk baseball base and common cards. You know, I probably have 300,000 baseball common cards sitting in the warehouse right now that there's just no outlet for them, unfortunately. Um, so, you know, unfortunately, sometimes you sit on them and you just got to wait for the right opportunity. At some point, someone's going to want to dig through or build some sets or has a use for them. I try never to just discard or throw anything out. We donate cards like that sometimes if possible. Um, yeah, just anything like that. We try to just we try to just move in bulk if possible. And you know, there's only so much you can donate to, right? Like you can go to children's hospitals, you can go to community centers. They don't want all of it all the time, right? But I have an idea for you. Just dawned on me. You, if you have that many base cards lying around, you could you could almost build out like a loot bag program or something like that, and uh, or a Halloween bag program and take them to the dollar store. And let the dollar store, you know, sell them to dollar stores or something like that. Prepackaged baseball card Halloween packages or something like that. A hundred percent. I also, uh, I like the idea. I also have a buddy that I went to college with that has a vintage uh, sports like clothing and apparel store in, in New York City. And what he, I drop, when I see him, I drop boxes of cards off to him that I just have no use for sometimes. And he literally uses them as his price tags on the uh, on the tags on the inside of the jackets or the jerseys. So again, just something fun that he you know interacts with his clients with, and just puts some of these cards from the junk era to use, right? Yeah, for sure, for sure. What do we have here? Card currency says how many cards per week are you selling on average, and do you want to and still want to know that biggest card? <laughs> All right, on average, um, we're probably at about a thousand cards a week. Um, but it really fluctuates. I mean, I come in some mornings for, on a Monday morning and we have, you know, 60 orders and sometimes it's 350. Um, it also depends on what type of auctions we're running. Did we not have auctions closed the last two or three days? So orders are a little, little bit lighter. But like last Sunday, we literally had 1,250 cards up and close in one night. So last week we were shipping 24-7. Um, you know, way more than a thousand orders with, you know, buy it now items, other pieces in the store, the auction. Um, so it just really depends. Yeah, I guess it, and it just, it's going to fluctuate, right? For sure. For sure. Uh, Eric Westrom says late to the show. Good content as always. Love the more cowbell shirt. Thank you, Eric. Yeah, this is a, it's a fun shirt. I, I, I'm always kind of wondering, like you guys see me wearing the same shirts over and over again. And, um, I kind of got to get some new ones, I think, just to have some fun. It's the one, but I, I will let I will let you know in the, out, out there and the, amongst all you all the viewers that I, I do think about the shirt every day. Like I put it on just before I come down to do the show, and uh, I always try and pick one that I hadn't worn in a little bit, just to, so you don't think I'm wearing the same clothes all the time. <laughs> okay, but I do like to wear a t-shirt. It's casual, it's comfortable, and all that. Um, okay, Justin. So I mean. Is there anything else we can discuss sort of about how you separate being like, I made the comment on, um, on, on Twitter. I said, you know, we're going to talk about, you know, can you get high on your own supply in the, in the sports card hobby? You know, that's obviously a reference to, to drug dealers who, you know, if you want to be a good businessman, you don't get high on your own supply in the sports card world. Um, you know, <laughs> I know that I, I'm a vendor. I set up at shows and I buy and sell. And if someone brings a box of cards to my table, 
I'm looking at it from from two lenses or through two different lenses. One lens is, is there anything I want in here for my personal collection? And the other lens is, is there anything in here I want that's gonna be showcase worthy, that's gonna, that's gonna get to get into one of my showcases and travel to card shows with me to sell. And it's pretty, it's pretty easy for me to do that. I know what I want. How do you approach that? And I mean, we sort of touched on it, but I want you to touch on it a little bit again, like how, especially after what I just said about how I approach it. Do you approach it any way, any differently than that? Or are you always business first? Yeah, I think, I think I'm in line with how you are, right? I mean, look, if you're in this hobby, you're in it for, you know, I guess one or two reasons or multiple reasons. I think it's just natural that you gravitate towards what you like the most and you know the most about it, but you're, everyone's trying to make some money. And you would like something to stash for yourself in a lot of ways, right? Um, you know, I know in the past, like I've bought collections where I've bought a thousand cards at a time, but I'm like, you know what? Those two cards are really rare. They fit my collection and I'm going to set those aside for my PC technically. And the rest of it, I'm going to move forward and sell and, you know, um, you know, make money on or bring in that revenue for the business right away. It's, I think it's just natural. I don't think it's a bad thing to embrace that. I think it's, you look back and you're like, I think it helps remember a deal a lot too. And kind of that transaction, you could say, look, you know, I made some money here, but I also got to keep something that means something to me or that I care about the most and whatever your niche may be. Um, and I just, I try and embrace it. I think it's a good thing. Yeah. I think the reason why I asked this is because on a, on, on the last episode I had, uh, was the last one? Yeah, with Rich Klein. Somebody it was either a, someone in the in the viewership that made a comment, or Rich himself said that you know you can't be a, a dealer and a collector at the same time. And I kind of spoke up. I said, well, I kind of disagree with that because I do do that. And I guess it really depends on context and at and to what degree you're you're a dealer, right? If you are somebody who owns a card shop and this is your this is this is the way you earn your living. This is the way you're feeding your family. You know, in that case, it may be harder to do both because when something comes in that through that door, uh, you know, you want to you you need to pay your rent, you need to you need to pay your mortgage and all those sorts of things. So you may need to really focus on keeping those cards in the business. But I guess it really depends on how comfortable you are in your financial situation, whether you can say, you know what. I'm going to make an exception for this piece because I do collect this player and this card fits right into my collection. So I'm going to I'm going to acquire it. I'm going to basically buy it from my from my store, from my business and keep it for myself. And I don't really see anything wrong with that. We're you know, we're not talking about, you know, we, we use that, you know, almost in jest the get high on your own supply kind of uh, uh, analogy, if you will. But this is different, right? We're not hurting ourselves. We're not doing anything illegal. We're just picking up a card that we want for ourselves, as long as we're not going to jeopardize our ability to pay our rent for the store, pay our staff, pay our mortgage, that kind of thing. So I, I certainly believe it's possible. I do it myself. I, I'm i a collector first who started setting up the card shows really because I wanted somewhere to headquarter myself. And I got a taste of it once. I was like, this is awesome. I love being on this side of the table. I get to look at other people's cards all day long. Now they bring them to me too. It's Best wonderful. Best of both you know? worlds for you, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I agree. I think I think just like a lot of things in life, it depends on the current position you're in, right? Your decision making comes from where you sit um 
from your perspective. Um, I think uh, I personally feel and know that I've worked so hard to get the business to where it is that I would pretty much do anything to keep it going and grow and make sure um, rent was paid and everybody's salaries were paid and all of that comes way first before, you know, um, some of the cardboard. So, you know, it's just where your priorities are and making sure you're in a position where, you know, stashing a card for a while or a collection for a while, whatever the case may be, um, doesn't leave you in a position where now, you know, you can't make ends meet, right? Exactly. It really comes from, it really depends on what your, uh, what your place is in the hobby. So for, like I said, that guy who has the card shop, well, and I know of one of the card shops here in town, the owner, uh, Darren from Maple Leaf Sports, he was a collector for a long time. And I remember when he transitioned out and he sold off his personal collection, he said, I just can't do both anymore. So he wasn't able to reconcile in his head or at least, and I'm not, it's nothing against him at all, but it just wasn't working for him to still collect. And it was now it became a business for him. And I, maybe he fell out of love with collecting a little bit, whatever it was, it's all fair. Whereas someone like myself, who goes to card shows for fun to set up. And I do go there with a, with a goal of at least making enough profit to pay for my, my trip and my booth setup, my showcase rentals, my, all the expenses that come along with it. But I'm not, I don't need to make a profit while I'm there. I, I don't do it for a living. I have a, I have another job. I have a, I have a job. So I I make, I make, I make my living that way. This is, purely a hobby and somewhat of a side hustle, if you will. But if that's, if the profit from the side hustle, you know, fluctuates year to year and maybe is, is low one year, it doesn't really mean I'm not going to be able to, to pay my mortgage or buy groceries or what have you. So it really depends how you're coming at it. If you're, if you're a dealer who does card dealing, whether you have a store or you work out of a warehouse or you just do the card show circuit, if you're doing that for a living, I would I would understand the comment that and Chris West clarifies Rich uh, Rich made that comment and the loquacious Rich Klein makes that comment says Paul, um, you know uh, I understand the comment more if it truly is your livelihood if it's not your livelihood I do believe that it's something that you can maybe uh, get away with being a collector and being a dealer at the same at the same time makes sense to you. Yeah, 100%. And when I first started out and was trying to grow the business, I sold pretty much everything I had, right, that I considered a PC um, or things that I was collecting at the time. I mean, I basically traded all of that to put into the business, right, and to invest in the business to move forward. I mean, again, your exact point is the position you're in is luckily you have another avenue for uh, of a job and revenue and and this is more of um, a hobby for you in a lot of ways, right? Um, but that's again, you're sitting in that perspective and some other people, you know, um, look at it a little bit differently. So I can understand both sides for sure. Yeah, and for me, it's by choice, right? I suppose I could quit my job and go into this full time, but I'm fortunate. I love my job. I love the company I work for, so I don't want to leave there. And I love having, you know, the hobby is so enjoyable for me from all perspectives, not only as a collector, which I love it. I, you know, I got a few cards here that came in this week that I'm going to show on the after hours uh, episode a little bit later tonight. Um, but, uh, <clears throat> you know, I love the collecting. I love the the dealing part of it. When I do go to card shows or even the virtual expo from that was in June. Um, and, I, and then doing this show sports cards live is another 
part, it's another part of the hobby for me. This is, this is me enjoying my hobby right now with all of you guys. Right. So it's, it's, I love the hobby. What can I say? Okay. Let's keep going though. Sean Rob wants to know, and let's keep this one quick. Do you use eBay global shipping to Canada, Australia, et cetera? Yes, we do. Um, for us personally, from our side of things, it keeps the shipping costs down and it gives us some added protections that basically what happens with the global shipping program is we don't ship it directly to those countries. We ship it to an eBay facility. I believe it's in Kentucky and then they forward it on to those countries. So a bunch of years ago, one of our biggest issues was that there's no real, unless you pay an exorbitant amount of money for a specific um, priority mail shipping to let's say Canada, you don't actually get a real tracking number. So the item would leave the States be in Canada, but you would never get a real delivery confirmation on the item getting there. And then again, as a seller, you open yourself up to claims that the item never got received and you really have no recourse at that point without a delivery confirmation. So that's why we started using the global shipping program. And, um, you know, that's yeah. the direction. And, you know, Canadians hate it because it adds such a high, uh, a high shipping charge to our card purchase price. Have you found that it's, it's reduced your Canadian uh, customers' volumes of transactions? Um, I would say so. I would say about 20% say about 20%. But the interesting thing is, again, it depends on what item items we're talking about, right? Like I would say on some of the lower end items, $50 or less, $100 or less, it's probably reduced it 20, 25%. But on some of the bigger items, I think if you're spending $500, $1,000 on a card, I think an extra 20 bucks, 25 bucks for shipping to make sure it gets there safely. And both of us have the, uh, the, the knowledge that it was delivered properly. I think people are willing to pay that. You know, okay. if you sell a ten dollar card to pay fifteen dollars for shipping, it's just it makes no sense. Yeah, yeah. Terry Fortune made the comment earlier. Like I know, and I see it on Hobby Insider. People post about it all the time. They, they, we Canadians just just hate the eBay global shipping because it just it can triple the price of your card sometimes. Scott Noble, Scott, I don't know if you were here earlier. Uh, we did have the vendor's name of these display cases, but Scott says they're amazing. I'm going to throw that up there right now. Again, in the ticker, guys, there's the website that uh, Justin bought these. Now, Justin is not affiliated with this company. We don't. I don't know who these guys are, Carney Plastics. But hey, if you like what they're doing, why not help you guys find them? Card currency. What is one of the biggest surprises you found going through a collection you bought? Can you do that quick? Can you answer that quick? Yeah, I think uh, Jeremy and I we touched on it briefly in the past. One of the coolest things I found was um, just bought a large collection. This guy had collected a long time. He was retiring, moving to Florida. And in his basement, you know, he had a large collection, said he at one point had ripped a couple cases of, um, you know, older Opeachy hockey. Needless to say, there's a five row I'm going through. I pull out one Patrick Wow Opeachy rookie card in what looks to me amazing condition. Needless to say, Five rows later, there was 22 of them in there. Um, yeah, so that was one of my favorite and best finds. We got all those graded. Um, I guess I could throw some of these up now that we still have available in inventory. We have two nine fives and I think six, six nines. Um, so these were the highest graded ones that came out of there. So it was pretty cool. That's a great answer, man. Great answer. Um, Here's a question again. Let's just go a, a quick answer to this one, Justin. Mr. LAGN wants to know what's the average price of cards you sell? Just gut. Yep, about $20. 20. That's low. I was expecting a bit higher. 
yeah, so that's still- it's 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 you know I'm looking at it from um, an on average basis, right? And just the volume, um, you know, I think what our guys are doing is more volume in, instead of you know the higher end pieces. So you're doing some five to ten dollar cards too. Yeah, hundred percent. And you know, like I'm trying to give an example, like the twelve hundred card auction that we had close Sunday. We had some cards that sold for you know close to a thousand dollars, but then we had other cards that were running there that our guys, our consigners, are trying to you know just increase that number. And they don't know. Maybe some of those cards are going to sell for forty, fifty, eighty dollars. Some like um, rare nineties inserts that unfortunately just don't pop, and they go for you know lower amounts. Got it. Okay. Paul Cashman says my first real job was at a card shop. The owner was a huge Gretzky fan. The struggle was real to balance the personal from the business. I get it. I get it. Chris uh, advises that you do now get tracking on first class international packages. You just have to check the respective countries shipping website. Okay. Good to know. Colin says full-time collector turned full-time dealer. So much more fun. Interesting. Interesting. Chris goes on to say that is assuming the respective countries' workers are actually doing their jobs and are actually scanning the items. Boston Irv, welcome to the show, says Shay Gilgis Alexander is overrated. Fair, fair comment. I mean, I saw what he did. I, I think he had like three points tonight or something like that. So I think it was him. Um, Scott Noble says, wow. And Card Currency says, thanks for the answer. Cool find on the Patrick Waz. No doubt. That is that that must have been so much fun because each time you're like, it's like that you find one, you're like, maybe there's another one. And then you find another one. And then you think maybe there's a whole bunch in here. And when you get to that 21st card, you're like, you're at that point, you're hoping for more. And then you're almost disappointed that you're not getting more and more after that. Right. It's like, you kind of get a little greedy at that point. I would have to think. A hundred percent. I never wanted that box to end. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was, what also was in there that was cool that we pulled out was like a ton of um, second year Mario Lemieux cards. So, oh. you know, from my experience in the hobby world, those second and third year cards have not been a big deal, but I think we're starting to see a big, uh, the change start to happen in the hobby side of things, the hockey side of things based on what's gone on in basketball and baseball and some of these other sports. Yeah. I remember back in the eighties, you know, collecting back in the eighties, second year cards were important cards. Like that second year Lemieux was a very important card. It still is an important card, but it, it like second year cards were important in the nineties and then people forgot about them. And right about now we're seeing, more and more people looking at them. But when you look at, you know, the the times where they are important, and this is this ties into the like the PSA set registry collecting uh, kind of angle, is that a lot of people are looking for master sets of a certain player. So if you want, if you want every single Wayne Gretzky card, you know, you want the basic Gretzky set, you need his base card from every year. Um, you need that second year, but now you also need the third, fourth, fifth, all the way up until say the 89 Opeachy card, for example, for using Gretzky, you can use Nolan Ryan for the same discussion. You got to get a 69 tops rookie card with Jerry Kuzman, and then you need every single other one after that. Right. And so I think, I wonder, I wonder how much impact the PSA set registry has had on the, the hobbies willingness to start chasing more than just rookie cards and i don't think this is a new thing this is something that would have been would have started several years ago now but i think about that sometimes and i wonder if that psa set registry has that impact or if there's already enough people out there that are player collectors that want you know every gordy howe card or every mickey mantle card like there's a lot of people chasing these player sets Do you yeah come- yeah 
Go ahead. Yeah, I think there's a, I think again, there's a broad spectrum of why people would want any card to begin with, right? Um, but in that case, I think it's also a matter of, you know, if you take even the early 80s cards now, those cards are almost 40 years old at this point, too. So when you start to also get to those top tier guys of, let's take Nolan Ryan and Mario Lemieux for an example, some of those really high end rookie cards are just out of everybody's league, right? In terms of what they can spend or are willing to buy a card for. So I think when you start looking from that perspective, you go, okay, what's the next best thing? Or where can I supplement the nice high grade Nolan Ryan rookie that I already have? Well, now let's move on to his next card. I think it's just a natural progression of, you know, um, something I see in this hobby that a lot of collectors, it's just never enough, right? Like every year you want the newest uh, LeBron James select card or the newest LeBron James prism card, um, all those kind of things. It's just, um, it's just a natural pattern to me. Yeah. Fair. Okay. So um, I'm going to just run through a few comments. We're, we're going to wrap this up in about 10 minutes, everybody. So appreciate the comments and questions tonight. They've been, they've been phenomenal. So thanks to everybody out there watching. Um, Boston Irv has a question. I don't think we're going to get into this though, Boston Irv, although I do love the discussion. You, you do say, have we, have we discussed the current downtrend in today's market and what we think will happen in the next six months or so? All I'm going to say to that is that, um, the hobby has been in an uptrend for the past year, and it's been in a significant uptrend for the past couple of months. This downtrend I think that you're referring to is like in the last day and a half or two days. And to me, it's too short of a sample size to call it a downtrend. I think we're just looking at, you know, people are like maybe they've blown their budget in the last couple of weeks, and now they may just not be blowing their budget, or they notice that Luca hurt himself, and then he came back, and now they take two days off, so there's no there's no headlines, there's no highlights, so people are getting disappointed. I think I think the downtrend you're, you're noticing is really because we had no sports for the last two days. Otherwise, it's, it's, it's quite simply, it's been an uptrend across everything. So uh, you must just be talking about the last two days. Mr. LAGN says, someone should create a website for people to list rarer cards they are looking for, or does it already exist? I mean, I can speak to that a little bit. You know, I'm involved in Hobby Insider, which is a message boards forum. And there's all there's a, all sorts of people always posting, uh, you know, kind of the whales that they're looking for. You'll see it in Facebook groups as well. I'd recommend looking into some Facebook groups. Just go to Facebook and type in sports cards or whatever sport it is you're interested in, whether it's basketball, football, baseball, hockey, golf, soccer, wrestling, whatever you want. And see if you can find groups. And there's plenty out there. I'm probably a member of three dozen different Facebook groups for sports cards. So you can find it. Uh, but I don't know if there's a website for it right now. I think there's several websites that address it. But they're more or less message boards website. Whether it's Sports Cards Forum, Hobby Insider, Blowout, uh, whatever else is out there. Tim Marin says, with so many cards, eras, variants, et cetera, how do you research every card well enough, especially if comps aren't readily available to ensure you're pricing properly? I mean, I'm going to let you, I'm going to quickly say experience. It, this is what you do for a living. You're in the hobby for so long. Experience. Justin, anything to supplement that? Yeah, I think experience definitely plays a role. Um, it has, you also, you have to keep up at least in a general sense with what's going on in the market and what's hot right now. Follow some of the trends and see what's happening. Um, but some of the most difficult stuff we try to price is some of the older stuff that's not run of the mill and everyday pieces. I got to be honest, we do 
I have a card that I'm not exactly sure what it is or product or year or something, we honestly use ComC a lot because their database is huge. Um, we also just do random eBay searches sometimes just to see and make sure we're seeing the right piece. I mean, some of these newer optic and mosaics, there's 40 different parallels, right? A lot of times I'm just trying to get the exact right name. Is this a teal parallel or an aqua parallel? Like I'm trying to just, you know, there's just like anything else, there's too much information to have it all in your head. Um, so I use a lot of the sort resources that I'm sure a lot of other people use to, uh, to get the proper information. Yeah, for sure. And the nice thing for you is that hopefully you're not having to sell a lot of these cards right out of the, like upon release date. So by the time you get around to it, there are, you, you can do your research and completed listings and active listings on eBay. You can look at, compare pictures. Um, and then there are services out there where you can go into the, into the, really into the archives and see what cards have sold for. So you just, it, it's experience in doing your research, I would say. Correct. And just one more point on that is to ensure pricing properly. The end of that question is a lot of times I just have a, a, a formal conversation with my consigner, right? Is say, listen, these 10 cards, I really don't know what to price them at. Where do you need to be at on them? Are you into them heavily? Are they the back end of a deal that you've already made profit on somehow, right? Um, is it a PC card that used to be a PC card for you that you must get? 400 bucks for it, whatever the case may be. Um, you know, I always try to, uh, you know, get as much information as I can. And I even tell some consigners, look, if there's a handful of cards in this consignment batch that you need to protect or get a certain price on, then give me that information up front and we're happy to try to get that number for you. Perfect. Okay. Let's keep going. We got about, we're going to cut off in about five minutes here. Hershey card says, can you give any pointers on how to negotiate when making deals? I'm not the best negotiator and buckle under pressure many times. Fair enough. I notice most people don't want to be the first to give a number. So I, I do have something to say to that myself, Hershey. And that is, you know, and I'm, I'm going to use the example of being at a card show. You go to card shows. A lot of people don't have price tags on their cards because they don't want to show their cards, you know, to use a, to use that, that analogy. I always put price tags on my cards. To me, that's putting a number on something and, I, and I'm, I'm going first. It's my card. I think I should price my card. If you don't like my price, make me an offer. I may or may not accept it. I may or may not have room. I may or may not have flexibility on that particular card. But when someone has a card, whether it's on Facebook or Instagram or in person or wherever, and they say to you, well, I'm only taking offers or make an offer, I basically don't deal with those people so much unless it's a card I really want because it's like, hey, uh, why would I negotiate against myself? It's your card. Put a price on the card. So to you, Hershey, if someone ever approaches like that, I, my response is, it's your card. I don't want to, I'd rather not price your card for you. If you price it, maybe I'll counter, maybe I'll just accept, maybe I'll just walk away, but it's your card. So please put a price on it. You know, don't make me do your job. Um, that's kind of the first thing. Otherwise, you just have to know what you're comfortable paying. And if you don't want to pay it, you know, make the offer. If they, if, if, if you want to pay $500 for a card, but they want 800, you know, you just have to say, well, anyway, any way you could make this work at 500, because that's really where I need to be. And now you have to accept their yes or their no and move on. Yeah, your point is 100% where I was going to take the question as well. When let's just take ex Toronto for an example, right? And I ask someone what the price is on something in their showcase, and they say make an offer. And I say, well, I'm sorry, but I don't make offers at shows. 
And they're like, you know, well, on eBay, you have to make offers, right? Or you can make an offer. The, my response is always, well, yes, but you actually have to have an asking price in order to have that offer come in, right? You can't just throw an item up on eBay and say, with no per starting price, right? You have to input a price there. And, um, you know, I also have the opinion of, even if I'm, a, I'm selling a card, I am always willing to at least have the conversation on price. If I'm asking $200 for something, I at least want to hear where someone wants to be at, right? Even if we don't get a deal done, I'm at least uh, gathering more information on where the market is, what people are willing to pay. And again, at the end of the day, it's cardboard. A lot of people are trying to buy them and, and use it to have fun and have an escape from their job or as their hobby. And it's cardboard. Let's have the conversation. If we can't get a deal done, it's it, I still it's we're still all good. It's not a problem. Yeah. Right? I totally agree. It's it, I, I'm the same way, Justin. If I have a price tag on the card and someone you know doesn't want to pay it, I want to hear what do you think it's worth because I I may adjust my price tag based on that that new market research. Um, I don't. I had something else I wanted to jump in with and it's just escaping me right now. Oh yeah, I have my cards priced at card shows and I love it when, and they're there, they're easy to see. And I love it when someone comes to my table and they, they look at the card, they say, hey, that that uh, that Mike Trout there, how much do you want for it? I'm like, well, the price is right on it. Yeah, I know, but how much do you want for it? Yeah. What, well, I'll take, hey, I'll take the price tag. Just give me, it, it, will, that, will, that, will that be cash or credit? Exactly. Like that's your whole point about not countering yourself. Right. And that comes up a lot when I honestly am negotiating with someone, if they're asking something, but I'm like, listen, I'd really like to pay this. And they're like, well, I don't want, I'm not going to sell it at that. What's, what's your next offer? I'm like, well, let's try to meet somewhere in the middle. Tell me if you're willing to come down and maybe I'm willing to come up a little bit. It's like, again, no one wants to be taken advantage of, of course. Um, but you also, I think some of the best deals are made when everybody relents a little bit and you find a happy medium. And the other tip I'll give you uh, to you, Hershey, is be nice, be humble. Like I'm when I'm set up at a show, if someone comes to my table and they they don't like the price and I can tell and it's a card that I have some room on, I'm going to give them that price that they want because I like the person. They're nice. They were polite. They weren't rude. And there's some that I, I feel maybe will come back next show and buy a card from me again and again and again. And it's not just about investing in that customer acquisition. It's really investing that relationship and, and growing the hobby through being friendly to other hobbyists. The worst thing you can do at a card show if you're set up is not look up when someone comes to your table. And I walk, or I walk through the card show and I go table to table and I'll look down at their showcase and I look up. And they're looking at their phone or their newspaper or just out and uh, out into space. They're not even acknowledging that I'm there looking at, at their at their goods. And I just kind of shake my head and think, how do you even pay for your booth? How do you even how do you even make this worth your while? Because you obviously have no social skills, no real, um, you know, it, it's all businesses, relationships, buying and selling cards like it or not is business. You got to be. You know, you say you can you can buckle under pressure. That doesn't mean that you can't be. And I'm not saying you're, you're not, but be friendly, be polite, and you'll be surprised how, you know, the better people in the hobby, the more savvy dealers will respond to you. I think you I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Yeah. And I think the first step in not feeling like you buckle under pressure, I don't know if you're referring to as a buyer or a seller. Right. But you just 
I think the first key in any of this is knowing what you have, right? I think there's a lot of people that have product that they're not sure either what they have or where they should price it at. You need to just do your research as best as you can to get a full understanding of, you know, whether it's your card or your collection. And and just so you don't feel like the numbers are so far off or skewed that you're that you're not sure what you're looking at, right? Yeah. And I have a feeling with Hershey, he's he's coming at it from being a buyer. And I think a lot of times buyers are just a little nervous to to offer. If they don't want to pay the price on the card, they sometimes get a little um upset about it not not mad but like sad and they just kind of go on their way because they're not for whatever reason they're not comfortable making an offer that's lower than the price like i've come across many buyers like that and oftentimes they just pay the price and i'm happily accepted you know that's my price tag you want to pay it that that's great because i'll that's what the price tag's there for okay let's try and burn through a couple of these ending comments on the on the evening boston irv says this new market is more reactionary than ever before it's essentially a new Daily Fantasy Sports League should be interesting when NBA season next year ramps up again. Irv, I 100% with every, agree with everything you said there. And, and I do love that it's essentially a new DFS league because I love DFS leagues. I'm, I'm in one tonight. And, um, and it really, especially with the lack of gambling that's been around for the past five months now, uh, cards are what we have to, to, to replace that. So it kind of, everything's kind of getting, getting coming together now and, and we're going to see how it is for the next year. I'm, I'm excited to see that. Chris West says collector groups are so fragmented now. So many groups and sites, true story. Just like Paul Cashman says, Chris says, I hate non-price stuff. They want me to buy and sell the item for them. Bingo. Nailed it. Exactly. No price your cards. Some people price them on the back, which is just highly annoying because now you got to wait for their attention and sometimes you just want to move on. So Price your cards on the front. If you're, if you're, I'm going to say this and it might sound bad, but you know, it's like, if, if you know what you're doing, you price your, you put your price tags on the front of your cards. If, if you, if you're a, a really a, a qualified, experienced person in this hobby, you put your price tags on the front of your cards, in my opinion. Brom says, yeah, nice. Uh, price fishing is really annoying. Sellers just need to put up a price. Agreed. Hershey says, thanks for the tips. Appreciate it, fellas. Awesome show. Hershey, thank you so much for tuning in. Boston's underrated channel deserve more subscribers. Thank you. Love to get more. Please subscribe, everybody, if you haven't yet, to the YouTube channel, Sports Cards Live. This is episode number 41. All the other episodes live on the channel. There's all sorts of wonderful guests that I've had from Dr. James Beckett to the owners of card companies to the VP of Beckett Grading to, to Justin Kramer right here to, I mean, it goes on and on. Steve Grad, who's been on over 130 episodes of Pawn Stars among many, many more. So check out the old episodes. They all live on the channel and uh, they're long, just like this one. So bite them off in chunks. YouTube will always remember where you last left off, which makes it really convenient. But if you haven't yet subscribed, please do. I'd greatly appreciate that. Chris says, yep, it's an amazing, amazing how many dealers don't acknowledge customers. I know. Facebook user says that is a huge point about dealers not making eye contact and stuck on their phones. I just keep walking. Yeah, as you should, you know. I'll look at their cards and I'll be honest. Usually those are the guys that don't have anything I want because the guys that have the cards that people want, I got to say, those people are interacting. They want the business. They're there to do business. Amit said, oh, he changed his name to 99 Goals Amit. No more Bull Bull. Now he's like Manute Bull. He says, Justin was great. Great to listen to you. Let me get some deals next show now. Yeah, Amit, Amit, everybody, is the guy who, who he's, he's like my expo partner. We sit up next to each other every expo, one of my best friends. Terry says, Jeremy is ruthless, not relentless. He always has prices, which I appreciate. Thanks, Justin. Thank you, Terry. 
I don't know how ruthless I am. I, I'm pretty easy to get along with. Shareholder, welcome to the show. Says MJ and Kobe cards still undervalued. Do you think that's a that's a tough one for me to answer? I mean, they they they've ten x in the last years. Are they still undervalued? It really depends where the market's going. Justin. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously they're at their peak from where they've ever been before. I think those are two guys, especially with the unfortunate events with Kobe, I think they still have room to climb. I think it might take a lot longer than the jump we've seen recently. Um, But I think there's a lot of pieces, especially with the new generation of collectors coming in, all the new people that I think are back on board with what's gone on with COVID here. Um, I think those top, top guys and some of the rarest, highest end pieces still have room to grow for sure. And and I'll, I'll add on to that by saying that I agree with Justin. These things are at their peak right now. Like the Kobe and LeBron tops Chrome base card PSA 10 has been fluctuating between like twelve dollars and $15,000 for the last several weeks. But, you know, <laughs> A year ago, you could get both those cards for under $2,500, probably even a bit less than that. So I think it really depends where we are in the cycle. And nobody truly knows. You know, we had Ken Golden on the show here about a week and a half ago of Golden Auctions. And the guy probably knows, has more insight into the hobby than most people do. He says, and these are his words, we're in the third inning of a nine-inning baseball game, which tells me there's room to grow. But Nobody really knows. And and Josh on Cardboard Chronicles said this on Carlos's show or maybe on the crossover uh, last night that nobody really knows where we are in this baseball game, really in the cycle of sports card values. Are we in the third inning? Are we in the first inning? Are we in the seventh, eighth or ninth? Nobody knows. The market is is a is a funny thing and we never really truly know where it's at. So it's it's hard to say. But we we are all we are all we all have the right to speculate and to say what we think. So if it's me, if you want my personal opinion, I do believe that that the hobby has elevated from where it's ever been, and and it's elevated due to this new foundation that lives underneath that's propped it up higher than it's ever been before. So I think that the values where they are right now on Kobe and LeBron, sort of specifically, and they are great sort of um, uh, m- measures of where the hobby's at overall uh, or indicators. I think that they're, it's so hard to say. It's so hard to say. I can see them growing more if we get more and more collectors coming into the hobby that want those cards. And I'll tell you, I was with a buddy of mine two nights ago who does not have a single card in in his collection, not a single card. And he's, I kind of was telling him what's going on. And he says, okay, I want in, I want in. I said, what do you want? He goes, well, I want to know where, what's, where's the money at? I said, well, it's in basketball because that's where I want to be. I said, well, what do you want? He goes, I want to be, I want, I want reliability, but I want some upside. So you want Michael Jordan, LeBron James, Kobe Bryant, maybe Luca, maybe Zion, if you want to get riskier. Anyway, he set his eyes on a Topps Chrome uh, PSA 9 LeBron James rookie card under about $5,000. And that's what he's going to get. So we have new people coming into the hobby just by guys like me and you going out there talking to people. Oh, anyway, okay. it's Sorry, yeah. To say. yeah, it's tough to say. I mean, I have some people that, I've worked with in the hobby that I look up to that are mentors to me or that are older than me and have been around a longer. And two, three years ago, some of them were saying that this hobby was dying, right? And now you're at a point where you think it's in the best position it's ever been. So these things change, you know, in the grand scheme of things, two, three years is not a very long time. They change quickly. What's gone on here 
um, around the world in the past six months, eight months has been crazy in a lot of respects. And COVID's brought out some unique things just in our little bubble of a hobby um, of an industry. And it's just really interesting. And I think that when you start getting to your point about people like Gary Vee having open conversations and hitting his platforms, and then you have the LeBron RPA selling for almost 2 million and the Trout at 4 million plus, I think it opens other people's eyes that are not necessarily card people. Maybe they're art people that are looking for to diversify some investments or their stock people that have money to burn and want to invest in certain things. So I think it's an exciting time. I think, um, and you know, high tide floats all boats and I think it's going to, it's going to help other stuff come up to higher levels too. And shareholder, I'd recommend if you're still out there watching, check out the episode on, on the sports cards live channel with, uh, with Ken golden from uh, a couple weeks ago, because we, we, speak about this specifically so it'd be more on point and you'll get his viewpoint as well let's roll through because i do want to i want to end this we got after hours starting in 20 minutes with charles uh dd kiss 65 says great job justin i'm sure you you. know who that person is jay ghost is great stuff keep thinking i need to set up a table at a show i i i I, uh suggest that to everybody who's in the hobby setting up a show is awesome carlos says a meet i think you're good for the 0.0 percent off one percent off um and carl says but yes we're all making hopefully educated guesses right now on the hobby and terry says thoughts on the stray hand jersey from golden uh nope no thoughts from me on that don't even nope okay shareholder thank you you are welcome shareholder thank you for joining and sorry terry just uh no no thoughts on that to answer the question okay guys everybody watching thank you so much for tuning in we're two we're almost two hours and 12 minutes Justin, it feels like 15 minutes, no? Yeah, I had a great time. I really appreciate it, and it uh, felt like it flew by. Yeah, you're, yeah, man. Thank you so much for coming on. Appreciate having you uh, on somewhat short notice, but um, I it was kind of great to have you. Great on point, speaking about you know balancing doing cards for a living versus doing it for a hobby, i.e., collecting versus dealing. Uh, indigenous uh, name just got the end out camping. Enjoyed it. Thank you for joining. Name. Ernie, great guest tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Ernie. Compliment for you, Justin. Legion Italia, thank you for the round of applause. This was a fun one, as always. We've had great viewership throughout. So thank you, everybody, for tuning in, whether you are on Twitter, YouTube, or Facebook. We appreciate all of you. If you haven't yet subscribed to the YouTube channel, I would greatly appreciate it if you would. And as um, as Absolute Authentics always says, hit that thumbs up button on the YouTube channel if you won't mind or on this video on YouTube. That seems to help somehow. I don't know how, but apparently it helps. So I appreciate that, everybody. We will be back in about uh, 20 minutes with Sports Cards Live After Hours, which is a, for me is a more relaxing version of Sports Cards Live, where I kind of sit back and just chat. My guest is going to be Charles Hind. He's a 15-year-old vintage collector, which I just thought was really cool, Some that I've communicated with for a while, and happy to have him on. Com C. Barry says, congratulations, Justin, for making a hobby into a business and doing it the right way. I will add, with integrity and honesty, Justin, I've known you a long time. I'd vouch for you anytime. Uh, it's great to have you on the show. Carlos says, great job, guys. Thank you, Carlos. Guys, check out Carlos's YouTube channel, one of my favorites, because I'm Carlos, just like it says right there. And Carlos was my guest last week on After Hours. House phone. Thank you, man. Thank you for joining. I say man like I assume you're a man. Thank you, person. 
I don't know you or I don't think I do, but thank you for joining. It's great to always see new names in the comments. So I appreciate the viewership growing, having a blast with this, planning to continue going with it. I'm going to, for the last second here, throw up my upcoming episodes. This is what's coming up, guys. The Urschel Brothers on September 2nd, they, they're they're really super collectors of of monumental patches, an amazing, amazing collection. And it'll be a nice, relaxing collector's perspective type episode. Stephen LaRoche will be joining me after that. He's a former Beckett editor. He writes card backs. He, he's written for, uh, he's writing blogs for Upper Deck. The guy's got a ton of hobby experience. Can't wait to have Stephen on. That'll be a lot of fun. And then on September 12th, Upper Deck's Chris Carlin will be joining me. And we're going to really talk, and that episode is going to be themed on doing good in the hobby. What, what can we do to, to do good? And then on September 16th, one of my other favorite YouTube channels, Dustin, his channel is called The Personal Finance Dad, but don't let that name fool you. He focuses on sports cards, even though he'll tell you he focuses on other things too. He focuses on sports cards. And finally, we'll go to the rest of the comments before we, we end this. Charles, we will see you soon, man. We will see you soon. Scott Noble's great show. Top two guys in the hobby. Thank you so much. Colin Murray, great job. Thank you, Colin, for joining as always. Okay, everybody. Justin, you stay right there. Everybody else, thanks again. We'll see you Wednesday or we will see you in about 15 minutes on After Hours. Been fun. Good night, everybody. Be safe. Be well. Enjoy the playoffs. Thank you, Georgetown. I don't know if we're still live, Justin. It's tough to say. I hit the end broadcast button. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.